أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم. نعم سورة بقرة نمبر. I'm going to start at 127. I'm going to repeat 127 and 128. سورة بقرة سورة نمبر 2 آية نمبر 127. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم. وَإِذْ يَرْفَعُ إِبْرَاهِيمُ الْقَوَائِدَ مِنَ الْبَيْتِ وَإِسْمَعِيلُ رَبَّنَا تَكَمَّلْ مِنَّا إِنَّكَ أَنْتَ السَّمِيعُ الْعَلِيمُ رَبَّنَا اجْعَلْنَا مُسْلِمِينَ لَكَ وَمِنْ ذُرِّيَّتِنَا أُمَّةً مُسْلِمَةً لَكَ وَأَرِنَا مَنَاسِكَنَا وَتُبْ وَلَيْنَا إِنَّكَ أَنْتَ التَّوَّابُ الرَّحِيمُ سبحان ربك رب العزة أما يصفون وسلامنا للمرسلين والحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صلي على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد ومبارك وسلم So the Kaaba Baitullah was first made by the angels, the Malaika then the Kaaba remained intact until the flood of Sayyidina Nuh alayhi salam and then the structure was brought down or eroded in the flood. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam to build the Kaaba again. Don't go there unless I tell you. In Surah Hajj, Surah Hajj, Surah number 22, verse number 26, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in Quran that He showed Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam the location of Makkum al-Karama, of that valley where to build the Kaaba. In a hadith in Bukhari, it comes that Sayyidina Rasulullah told us that Sayyidina Ibrahim then asked his son, Sayyidina Ismail that I've been given this command by Allah subhanahu will you come and accompany me and help me? And his son said yes. Now, after they completed building this house, they're making dua of Qubuliyyah, and this way the Mashaikh and Awliya and my own Shaykh and Waliullah explains it, is that Sayyidina Ibrahim is the Khalilullah, and he is building Baytullah, and it is based on that instruction was received him by wahi from Allah, and he has fulfilled the hukam of Allah, but notwithstanding that, he is worried about kubuliyat in the law, he is worried that Allah subhanahu will accept his action. So that means that if even if the anbiya were worried, that even if we do something good, whether Allah subhanahu will accept it or not, that means you and me and every Muslim should have that fear that I have done what Allah Ta'ala commanded me to do, but is it worthy of His acceptance? As we say in Arabic, kama yiliku sha'nuhu. As you would say in Urdu, unki shan ki mutabik ya amal hayyane. Unki bargaam me pesh karne ki kabal hayyane. Is it worthy to be presented in front of Allah subhanahu or not? And when you think like that, you would think that no, there's no amal I've done that is worthy to be presented in front of Allah subhanahu wa So it's only going to be what we call his sharfi kubuliyah. It's only going to be his generous, kind compassion on us that he accepts an act of devotion. So this was the feeling of Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam and obviously Sayyidina Ismail alayhi salam would have made dua, uh, amin on this dua. The second dua that he makes is, O oh Allah subhanahu wa make us muslimin. And so now you have this word Muslim, it means, doesn't mean the religion of Islam that's going to come with Sayyidina Rasulullah it means make us people who truly submit. And that is what the word Islam means, it means to attain peace through submission. The word Salam means peace, the word Taslim means submission. The word Salam means peace, the word Taslim means submission. The word Islam means to create peace through submission to the will of Allah subhanahu wa So when Sayyidina Ibrahim is making this dua, he's saying that make us, and it, so the plural is here, so it means me, Sayyidina Ibrahim Sayyidina Ismail and every other person who is conceiving will exist in his progeny, and all future people who will inhabit or dwell or worship near this Kaaba, he wants all of them to be Muslimin alak, people who only and only submit to you, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, alone. 
وَمِن ذُرِّيَتِنَا And from our progeny and offspring, make a whole ummah, ummatam muslima. And so this is why actually it is said that this ayah shows that Sayyidina Ibrahim al-Islam already knew the name of this ummah that was going to come. And here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is showing it to the Bani Israel that even this name of this deen that they're calling themselves Muslims, that was something that Sayyidina Ibrahim al-Islam had already made dua for and already had said. Next to he made, وَأَنِنَا مَنَاسِكَنَا And oh Allah, show us the rites of worship that we have to do. Sometimes they will translate it as the methods to perform Hajj and Umrah. Manasik means the rites of worship that we need to do. Now that we've built this Kaaba, Baitullah, how are we supposed to worship you in this? So this comes, uh, Tafsir ibn Kathir has mentioned that the angel Jibreel came down in response to this dua and showed Sayyidina Ibrahim how to perform Hajj. Every single article and feature of Hajj. And that's why then if you go back to Surah Al-Had, Surah number 22, verse 27, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded Ibrahim alayhi that after being taught these manasik, He commanded that you should announce or proclaim or invite people to Hajj. Now, obviously Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi after being taught this, would have done Hajj properly. So would his son have done Hajj properly. And it may have continued for some time, but over time these practices were corrupted. So much so that at the time of Jahiliyyah, pre-Islamic Arabia, the Arabs, the Mushrikeen of Makkah Makarama, the idol worshippers, they had all types of different ways of worshipping. They still used the word Hajj. The name had remained. And you find this many times in human history. That many times the name remains, but the reality changes. So they still called it Hajj. They still used the word Manasik in Arabic to describe the rites of worship they offered. But they used to, they still made Tawaf. But for example, just to give you one example, they used to make tawaf naked. They had idol statues sitting in the Kaaba. Now, I wanted to point this out for a particular reason. And that is, is that it shows you something. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the most holy, sacred being. Baytullah is one of the most sacred places in the universe, right? Along with Arsh and Kursi and Medina Manawra. But even notwithstanding that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given human beings free will. If they want to do good, they do good. And if they want to do evil, they may even be able to do evil such as doing tawaf naked right in front of the Kaaba. And it should make you also understand that sometimes people talk about the graves of the awliya. And sometimes, unfortunately, today in Pakistan and in some other Muslim countries, people do things that are impermissible, unlawful at the graves of the awliya. For example, I remember once when I was young, my family took me in Karachi to, I think, Shah Abdullah Ghazi or some name like that. And I saw with my own eyes drugs and music and dancing at the grave. Obviously, all of these three things are unlawful. I still remember, I can even remember the spectacle or the vision of that. All of these things are unlawful. Unfortunately, what some people do is they make the mistake and they say, look, because something unlawful is going on at this person's grave, that must mean that that person really wasn't a waliullah. Because if they were a waliullah, Allah Ta'ala will have given them real kabuliyah and nothing bad would happen at their grave. No. If you use that logical reason, then Allah SWT is not Allah. Billah. Because bad things happen in Kaaba. Statues are placed inside of Kaaba, inside Baytullah. People are doing tawaf naked around Baytullah. Allah Ta'ala has given human beings free will. So notwithstanding the practices against Shia that may be happening at the graves of these awliya, they were awliyaullah. And they know, way this was not his teaching. He did not become a sheikh and wali because he taught people to dance and do drugs and play music. He was known as a waliullah because he brought people to taqwa, to Quran, to sunnah, to love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to zikrullah, to preparation for akhirah. 
he was a living jannati on earth and he guided people to become jannatis. That was his legacy. It's a shame that what is left at their resting places are these, you know, abysmal practices that have nothing to do with the deen. Alright. Finally, dua that he makes, Sayyidina Ibrahim wa sallam, alayna. Ya Allah. Sayyidina Ibrahim has not made some sin that he's asking for tawbah. He's done maybe one of the greatest acts of worship to build a masjid. And the greatest masjid he's built, Masjid al-Haram, right? Built Baytullah. But still he felt that maybe, maybe there was some slight lack of sincerity. Maybe there was not absolute perfection in this act. So he's immediately making tawbah. Allahu Akbar. We should think that when we make sin, how much tawbah we need to make. Indeed, Allah subhanahu wa asking you tawbah because you are the being an epitome of tawbah. You relent to people and you accept their tawbah and you are all merciful. Then he said, then he made a next word that Allah subhanahu wa send unto them amongst this community, Rasul, and in this community, Makkah Mukarama. They say, Ibrahimi Dua. Send to them from amongst themselves in this community, Makkah Mukarama, a prophet, a Rasul, right? A Nabi and a messenger. So remember I told you yesterday that Earlier on there was an ayah where Sayyidina Ibrahim Muslim just talked about. If you look here, Man Amana Minhum Billahi wal Yom al Akhiri. This is uh, ayah number one twenty-six. And I told you Risala is coming. So Risala he's making dua. He's making dua because actually he was worried, he wanted that Ummah that would come to Makkah Makarma. He wasn't thinking that okay, I built Makkah Makarma, now give me an Ummah and I'll be the Rasul. He didn't think like that. You could have thought like that, that okay, you made me build the Kaaba. I'm the Rasul, now grant me an Ummah. He said, no, make an Ummah come later. And for that later Ummah, send to that Ummah from amongst themselves the Prophet. يَتْنُ alayhim ayatika wa yu'allimuhumul kitaba wal hikmata wa yuzakihim. That that Prophet will recite your ayat, your revelation to them. And will teach them that book. And will teach them wisdom. And will purify them. So this is a very important verse. And it's going to come several other times in the Qur'an al-Kareem. And I'm going to mention to you here what these things are. These are what we call the four functions of prophethood. In other words, what is a prophet? Who is a prophet? What is prophethood? What is prophecy? It's Allah SWT's right that He should tell us what that is in Quran. And Allah SWT has mentioned that Nubu'at consists of four things. That Rasul is going to do four things. Number one, we'll recite the verses of Revelation. So that's Sayyidina Rasulullah did. Right? He came and he recited the entire Quran al Second, الكتاب, and he will teach them the book. So this shows that your book is something, Quran is something that needs to be taught. You see the Sabiqran knew Arabic. If knowing Arabic was enough to understand it, they wouldn't need the Prophet to teach them. So if you can't actually fully understand, fully understand the Quran, even if you're a Sahabi, Arabi Sahabi, then there's no way you can fully understand the Quran by reading English or Urdu translation. The book is something that is meant to be taught, instructed, learnt, meant to be recited, number one, and also meant to be taught, studied, and learnt. So the first person who's going to do that is the, the prophetic teaching of the book. Second thing, well, hikmata in the Arabic, actually, hikmah is a second object that's joined to this verb, yu'allimuhum, it means to teach them the kitab, and to teach them hikmah. Hikmah can mean one of three things. First meaning, it can mean sunnah. It means the additional revelation that Allah Ta'ala is going to send on the Prophet other than the Qur'anic verses. Second, it can mean deep understanding of deen, i.e. wisdom. Third, it can mean the ahkam, ahkam is shari, the legal injunctions of Islam. Because some of the fine details of the legal injunctions of Islam aren't in Qur'an. 
For example, Hajj itself. You will not find the way to do Hajj in Quran. Salah itself. You cannot find exactly how to pray Salah in Quran. You can't even find the number of the rakats of the fard prayers in the Quran. Right? So that shows you, all of you know Salah and Hajj are two of the most important types of ibadah. And if they're not mentioned, the detailed legal rulings about them are not mentioned in the Quran, and the detailed real rulings about them are part of Islam, therefore there must be a body of revelation that is something additional to Quran. This is what is called Hadith. Sunnah and Hadith is just like Quran and Ayat. The Quran is made up of ayat, right? The Quran is comprised of, consists of verses. The sunnah can, is, is that word that is used for the entire collective prophetic teachings, and that is comprised of single reports and narrations known as hadith. So if somebody says, I don't believe in hadith, I only believe in Quran, they actually don't believe in Quran. Because if they're saying, I don't believe in hadith, they're saying, I don't believe in hikmah, that's in Quran. I don't believe in ta'lim, because okay, let's look at this, kitab. The function of the Prophet is to teach the book. Is he going to teach from his own akal? No, he's a Nabi. Everything he does comes to him from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So he's going to teach Sahaba on the basis of some teachings he receives from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that's a second category of revelation. And those people who think that there's no such thing as hadith and there's only Quran, then they follow what I call the parrot theory of prophethood. Now the Billah, they think that Sayyidina Rasulullah is just a parrot. He listens from Jibreel and he recites it. That's all his legacy was. That's absolutely incorrect. Absolutely incorrect. Right? And the fourth thing that is mentioned here, will you zakki him and what will that Rasul do? Number four, that Rasul will purify them. Practically train them called tarbiyah, tazkiyah, islah. Will train them spiritually, morally in terms of their adab, their akhlaq. And adab akhlaq doesn't just mean being a nice guy or a good employee. Adab and akhlaq means good morality, but it also means heightened spirituality, what we call sifat mu'minana. All these sifat mu'minin, that's part of tazkiyah, that they won't be creatures of their desire, that they will have sabr, shukr, tawakkul, inabat ilallah, ruju ilallah, love for Allah subhanahu that's also part of morality. And this is a problem that we have today, that we have a group of people who want to claim they have morality without having spirituality. It's not possible. That's why Sayyidina Rasulullah, for example, he said, that that person who is not grateful to human beings is not grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now this is normally used in one way, saying that you must be good to people. But it's also saying you also have to be good. The false sunnah is to link morality and spirituality. These things can never be separated. A person who has spirituality but doesn't have morality is also problematic. And a person who has morality and doesn't have spirituality, that's also problematic. And for each of them to point the finger at the other, that's doubly problematic. The only solution is to become people of morality and spirituality. Of adab and akhlaq and sifat mu'minana as mentioned in Quran al-Kareem. Alright? So all of that is called tazkiyah. Then, then uh, Sayyidina Muhammad ends his dua, then indeed Allah subhanahu you are almighty and you are all wise. Then Allah subhanahu addresses that those people who turn away from millati Ibrahim, those people who turn away from military, so this is an ashar to the Bani Israel, that you are leaving the Millat Ibrahim. Why? Because the Quran and the Prophet is just a continuation and a culmination of that, and you are spurning it, you are turning away from it. So the Millat Ibrahim, after the Quran is revealed, is now in the deen of Islam. 
Where is the Millat Ibrahim to be found? Once the Quran is revealed, the Millat Ibrahim is to be found now exclusively in the deen of Islam. And what was that Millat Ibrahim? That's what the dua he made that make us Muslimin alak. Millat Ibrahim means to be people who purely submit in obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Shaykh Ali Tanvirim ta'ala when he explained this ayah in his tafsir Bayan al-Quran, he said that this level of pure submission means that no matter what happens, I will follow the commandments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. No matter what my future holds, I will follow the commandments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So much so that even if a person were to be given yaqeen, absolute certainty, they were to know with certainty that I'm going to be placed in Jahannam forever, even then they wouldn't sin. Even then they wouldn't say, well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean I have any excuse to sin now. It doesn't mean, so what's the point? They would say that this is who I am. This is my identity. I submit. No matter what happens, I'm going to submit to the hukum of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying here that who is it, who, who else can it be who turns away from the millet of Sayyidina Islam except that person who is made a fool of their own self. But indeed we have chosen him. Allah ta'ala is saying, we indeed chose Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam fi dunya in this world by making him a special prophet, by making him a markadi, a central prophet. And indeed, in the akhirah, Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam will be amongst the salihin. Now here salihin doesn't mean category, like I said, Nabeen, Siddiqeen, Shuhada, Salihin, doesn't mean like that. Obviously every prophet is amongst the righteous. Right? Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam will be amongst the righteous ones. Then, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saying is that when you tell them, when their Rabb tells them that they should submit, so how do they respond? They say, uh, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam that he should submit, so Sayyidina Ibrahim responded, Aslam to the Rabbil Alameen, immediately said, I 100% submit to the Rabb of the Alameen. Very simple, two-step process. Know Allah and serve Allah. Two steps. Know Allah, serve Allah. So when the Rabb of Sayyidina Muhammad told him to submit, he simply said, I submit. I submit to the Rabb of all of the Alameen. Now what is coming is that Sayyidina Ibrahim salam, and Sayyidina Yaqub salam, they both gave wasiyah, they gave some advice, some parting words, some counsel to their sons, their children. And they said to their children, Ya Baniya, inna Allah astafalakum ad-deen, that all oh, our children, sons, progeny, that know that Allah subhanahu has chosen for you deen, has chosen for you deen. And don't die except that that death catches you in a state that you are amongst the people who submit to that deen. That you are amongst the people who submit to the commandments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What's going on here? What happened here? The next ayah, uh, now we're sort of on number 123. The next ayah is that the Jews used to tell the Prophet that no, Sayyidina Ibrahim salam, he left behind this instructions to his progeny that they should follow the religion of Judaism. So now Allah Ta'ala is asking them that were you there when death presented itself to Yaqub salam, sorry, Yaqub salam told his progeny that they should follow the religion of Judaism. So Allah Ta'ala is saying that were you there when Yaqub salam was facing his death? Were you there when he left his final parting words? Right? No, he told his children he asked them, what are you going to worship after I pass away? And his children who were there, what did they say? We are going to worship your God, and the God of your forefathers. What does that mean? Sayyidina Ibrahim, Ismail, 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 
right? That's what's here. Ilahu wahida, that one and only God. As we're going to stay on the path of pure tawheed. We're going to stay on the path of pure tawheed. So this gives us his instruction. And we will exclusively, Lam comes for ikhtisas, we say in Arabic here. We will exclusively submit only and only to that one God. This shows us, this is a lesson for us that we should be concerned about our children. The Anbiya were concerned about their children and progeny. And they were concerned about such a basic thing as tawheed and iman. So the Qur'an Karim is teaching us that we should have the same concern for our children. Not wait till they mess up and hope to bring them to deen. Not wait till they become a drug addict and then try to bring them to somebody who can try to bring them on deen. No, that from their very childhood, from their adolescence, from their teens, to teach them the importance of deen of Islam, to teaching them the Qur'an and the teachings of Nabi Islam. Then Al-Spantah is continuing to address these Jews, Tilka Ummatan Khalak, that look, that was a community, the community of Yaqub al-Islam, that has passed already, had passed away. Laha ma they will have what they earned. Right? And this is why, because the Jews felt, they know we're going to follow our forefathers, and our forefathers will save us on the Day of Judgment. They will have what they earned, malakum and you will have what you earned. And you will not be questioned, you will not be questioned about what they used to do. Alright. Now, the Jews and Christians used to say to people, the, the, the Jews and Christians used to tell people that either you should be Jewish or you should be Christian, then you will be rightly guided. So Allah Ta'ala is saying, tell my Prophet, tell them, it's not about being Jewish or Christian, about it's following Millati Ibrahim Hanifa. What does the word Hanif mean? So Hanif in Arabic means two things. An inherent, intrinsic aversion to sin and a steadfastness and attraction to good. And this is what you see about Sayyidina Ibrahim salam, right? Even before what he came upon him and it was manifested that he was a prophet, he looked at the sun and the moon and the stars and was looking and he said, none of these things can be my God. My God is something beyond this. This was his Hanif Tabiat. His righteous, inherent personality, what we call Fitrat Salim, His pure Tabiat. So Allah SWT is saying, it's not about the Jewish religion or the Christian religion, it's about following in middle to Ibrahim. And again, like I told you, the manifestation of the middle to Ibrahim today is the deen of Islam. وَمَا كَانَ مِنْ الْمُشْرِكِينَ Know that Ibrahim Islam was never ever from amongst the idolaters. قُولُوا آمَنَّ بِاللَّهِ وَمَا أُنزِلَ So now Allah SWT is telling the believers, the Muslims, that what should you say? You should say that we believe in Allah SWT and we believe in that which has been revealed to us. Quran al-Kareem. And we believe in that which is revealed to Ibrahim al-Islam, Ismail al-Islam, Ishaq al-Islam, Yaqub al-Islam, and Asbat. Asbat in Arabic refers to the progeny, successors, descendants of Sayyidina Yaqub al-Islam. Alright. وَمَا أُوتِيَ مُوسَى وَإِيسَى And that which was brought to Sayyidina Musa al-Islam and Isa al-Islam. And مَا أُوتِيَ النَّبِيُّونَ And that which was brought to all the prophets, whether their names are mentioned in Quran or not, we believe in every revelation that was brought to every true prophet of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right, and this also shows again the importance of the Anbiya and the importance of Risala, Mirabbihim, people who are generally sent from their Rabb. لَا نُفَرِقُ بَيْنَ أَحَدٍ مِّنْهُمْ We do not distinguish between any of them in this sense. It doesn't mean that Obviously we distinguish that Sayyidina Rasulullah is the greatest prophet and he's our sunnah to follow, but we don't distinguish in terms of iman. Not in terms of ittiba'i sunnah, in terms of iman, we believe that Isa, as much as we believe that the Prophet Muhammad was a prophet of Allah, 
equally much we believe that Sayyidina Musa was a prophet of Allah, Sayyidina Isa was a prophet of Allah, Sayyidina Ibrahim was a prophet of Allah. It's not that we have a slight doubt about that, but we're convinced, no, we're equally convinced. The same thing that we exclusively only submit to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If, so if they have iman, if these people, Jews and Christians, bring what type of iman? The iman, the like of which you have iman in. Then they will be rightly guided. This ayah shows the sha'an of the sahaba. Amantum is plural. Allah Ta'ala is saying in Qur'an that if the Jews and Christians, Ahle Kitab of Makkah, Makarama, Medina, Munawra, at that time, bring whose iman? Allah Ta'ala said they bring iman in Millat Ibrahim, iman in Qur'an, Sunnah. No. Amanu bimithli ma amantum. In the likeness of the iman that you sahaba have. So sahaba's iman, Allah Ta'ala is guaranteeing it in Qur'an. That's why any theology, any sect that thinks that Sahaba are kafir, even one Sahaba is kafir, they are going against Qur'an al-Karim. This is a Qur'anic guarantee that not only do the Sahaba have Iman, Sahaba have a level of Iman that must be emulated. They are mayad of Iman. They define Iman. They are models of Iman. Ahl kitab are being told in Qur'an, bring an Iman like theirs. When Tawallun, if you turn your back, if you spurn this call and invitation to Iman, then know that you are fi shikaq. Shikaq means you are just being contentious. You will be split into schism and divisions. You will remain in disputation. And now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling the Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, that for you, against them, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is sufficient. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is sufficient. Wa huwa sami'ul alim. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all listening and all knowing. Allah. وَمَنْ أَحْسَنُ مِنَ اللَّهِ سِبْغَ The original meaning of this verse was that the Christians used to feel that, and still today actually they baptize, they do it, some sects of Christianity at least do it seven days after a baby is born, they baptize the baby, which means they bathe the baby in a colored water. So here Allah SWT is responding that that colored, that the dye that you put, in some sects it was yellow, that's nothing. You don't want to immerse your children in a yellow colored water. What you want to immerse your children in and immerse yourself in is simghatullah, is the color of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You want to be baptized in the rung, the color, the mizaj of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In other words, the way He wants you to be. What does it mean? So if He is Ar-Rahman, you have to be Abdurrahman. If He is Ar-Rahim, you have to be Abdurrahim. For each and every one of His sifat and His zat, you have to mold yourself as an Abd. You have to be Abdul Kareem, Abdul Shakur, Abdullah. That is the attributes that you're supposed to have. Those are the colors that we have. Just like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Asmaal Husna, the beautiful names, we are supposed to give rise into ourselves the beautiful sifat of ubudiyah, of servanthood and slavery to each of those names. Those are the beautiful rungs and the beautiful colors that a person should have in the deen of Islam. And we are indeed, all, again, only and only devoted servants and worshippers of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then, Say to them that atuhadunana that you still dispute with us fillahi about Allah Smalta concerning Allah Smalta Rabbukum He is our Rabb and your Rabb. We're all in the Abrahamic tradition, it's the same Rabb. Follow Millat Ibrahim. Wallana to us we will have our actions and deeds, Walakum Aatmalukum, and to you you will have to face the consequences of your actions and deeds. And and we are sincerely, exclusively worship for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Lahu, lahu here means Allah. We don't believe in Isa Islam as son. 
We don't worship Isa, we don't pray to Isa, we only and only pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's the difference between the A'mal of the Muslim Ummah and of the Ahlul Kitab at that time and ever since. Then, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that, do, they, do you say that indeed Ibrahim alayhi salam, Ismail alayhi salam, Ishaq alayhi salam, and Yaqub, and Al-Sabat, again the progeny, Kanuhudun al Nasara, you say that they were Jews and Christians? Kul, O Prophet tell them, Antum atnamu amillah, do you know better? Does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala know better? Whether they were Jews and Christians or they were on Millat Ibrahim, which culminates in the of Islam. وَمَنْ أَدْلَمُ مِمَّنْ كَتَمَ شَهَادَةً إِنْدُهُ مِنَ اللَّهِ That who is more unjust, who can there be who is more unjust than that person who conceals the evidences that lie with them and that came to them from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now this ayah again, now we should reflect that this could happen to us. So this is, surah, uh, this is verse 140. Sometimes we know something but we don't follow it. Right? It's an evidence, it's a hujjat on us but we conceal it, we don't think about it. We don't want to be aware of it. We don't share it with others. So we have the Qur'an wrapped up in the top shelf of our bookshelf in our home. We conceal it. We don't open it. We don't read it. We don't go to somebody to teach it like the Prophet taught the Sahaba. We don't submit to it. If we don't do that, then we are concealing. And many of us, many of our homes are like that. The Qur'an al-Kareem is lying concealed in a nice cloth, velvet cloth wrapping on the top shelf of the bookshelf. And it's come, indahu min Allah. It has come to us from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. amma That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not unknowing of each and every single thing that you do. So remember again that that ummah is an ummah that is past already. Allah is repeating the same verse for emphasis. They will have what they earned and you will have what you will earn and you will not be asked about everything that they, things that they used to do. Okay, Bismillah, second juice. سَيْكُلُ السُّفَهَاءُ مِنَ النَّاسِ مَا وَاللَّهُمْ أَنْ كِبْلَتِهِمْ أَلَّتِي كَانُوا عَلَيْهَا Soon, the people who are ignorant, Sufaha means ignorant, people will say, from, from people will say, that what is it that turned them, means turned the believers, from their Qibla, turned the Muslims from the Qibla, that they used to be upon. So the issue here is that for 16 to 17 months of the beginning of the Salah, Sayyidina Rasulullah and the Muslims used to pray towards Baytul Muqaddis Jerusalem. However, during that time, Sayyidina Rasulullah's heart's desire was to pray towards Kaaba. And it comes in a hadith actually that once when Jubil Islam came, even as Jubil Islam, that you know, could you ask Allah SWT if he could pray towards the Kaaba? And Jubil Islam also fears Allah. He says that I'm, I'm a messenger. I'm not in that, I cannot ask. I cannot put forth your request. So when Sayyidina Rasulullah heard how fearful Jibreel Islam was, then he himself also then didn't make any dua with his tongue. But what he used to do is sometimes he would look up expectantly, thinking that Allah Subhanahu would send Jibreel Islam down with this command that, okay, you can pray towards the Kaaba. He would sneak glances, right? Like sometimes a child wants something and they kind of glance expectantly. So that's what the Prophet was doing. Now, after he did that, then Allah subhanahu wa then revealed to the Prophet, and that ayah is coming just in a little bit, Allah subhanahu wa revealed to the Prophet that, okay, we have seen your loving, furtive glances towards the heavens, waiting for my command to come, according to your wishes, that you could change the Qibla towards the Kaaba, so you should change the Qibla. So now the Muslims also are praying towards Baytullah, to Makkah right? Now all of these people, the ignorant ones, start asking, what's the matter with you? First you were praying that way, now you're praying this way. So this whole series of ayat, right, is a response to all of that. 
So first, say that to Allah subhanahu wa belongs east and west. It means to Allah subhanahu wa belongs everything, all directions. And again, it means that wherever you are, you are oriented towards Allah subhanahu wa And Allah ta'ala is always oriented towards you. He guides whomsoever He wills, ila salatul mustaqim, to the right straight path. Just like that, then Allah subhanahu wa says, thus you can say, that's how you can translate wakadalika, thus to al-nakum, Allah subhanahu wa says that we have made you, ummatan wasata, that we have made you this, now how would you translate this word? This word, wasata, means, number one, just. The most just, upright, adl. Just and upright. Second, it can also mean best. Third, what it means is well-centered. I'm deliberately trying not to use the English word moderate. Because the English word moderate has been hijacked today and used for activities that don't characterize ummat and masata. Certain secular progressive Muslims today use the word moderate. By moderate they mean that you're 50% Abu Lahab, 50% Abu Bakr. Sometimes, Moderate. Right? Ravi. And then they add another one of our Islamic words, Nur, Manawar, enlightened moderation. No. Ummatul Masa actually doesn't mean that your taqwa is moderate. Quran, you're going to be saying, it's going to be coming. Extreme taqwa. Quran asks for extreme taqwa. Extreme love for Allah. Extreme fear of Allah. Extremely regular on salah. Extreme haya. Extremely lowering the gaze. The Quran asks for those things at an extreme. When you have those things on extreme, you will be a well-centered community. You will be a well-focused, well-placed community. That's what this means. And you will be centered on what? On justice and uprightness and on piety. So it's a big, unfortunately, sometimes the dictionary translation that you may find, every dictionary in the English word moderate, the feel and connotation as we say of the word moderate is completely different than the, Arab, the, the connotation of the Arabic word wasata. So I'm going to call this mu'tadil. This is how you would put it in Arabic. But even then in Urdu you would destroy the word mu'tadil as well. Right? It means well-centered, focused, right? Why? لِتَكُونُوا شُهَدَاءَ عَلَى nas That you are actually going to be you are actually going to be bearing witness on all of humanity. So there is a series of hadith in the Sahih of Bukhari in which Sayyidina Rasulullah is portrayed what's going to happen on the Day of Judgment. And on the Day of Judgment, every prophet will also be first asked by Allah SWT, did you deliver the message? And all of the anbiya are going to present not their own followers, even though all of them would have had at least some righteous followers. Still, they will choose to present the Muslim ummah. Why? Because their own followers are going to give testimony on the basis of their own memory. The Muslim Ummah is going to give bear witness on the basis of the Quran. They're going to say, yes, Nuh was a Nabi because Quran said he was a Nabi. We can't, we won't be able to bear witness on the basis of our memory. We weren't there. So because the other Anbiya know that the Muslims will, when they show their proof, their delil will be Quran, that's the best delil for them. So they will actually call upon the Muslim Ummah to testify to their prophethood. Allahu Akbar. Second thing, وَيَكُونُ الرَّسُولُ عَلَيْكُمْ shahida, And that Sayyidina Rasulullah wasallam will become a witness over you. Obviously when it comes to the Prophet questioning, he'll have to present his own ummah. So that comes indeed that he will first present Sayyidina Abu Bakr as-Siddiq That all of you want to ask me, did I do my job as a Prophet? Look, I present you Abu Bakr. He is an embodiment Abu Bakr is a living embodiment to prove he is a Siddiq. 
He is not just a Siddiq in this world that he verified Nabuwa of Sayyidina Rasulullah in front of Mushrikeen in Mecca. He will be the Hujjah, Tasdeeq. He will be the verification of the prophetic mission on the Day of Judgment. Allahu Akbar, radiyallahu ta'ala anhu wa anhu majma'in. And Sayyidina Rasulullah will become a witness over us. Now this can mean many things, right? Certainly it can mean in one sense that the Prophet may bear witness as to who is a member of his ummah. He will tell Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who is in his ummah. And on what basis will that be? Well, it makes sense in any relationship is two ways. To however much any one of us viewed him and accepted him and lived a life by making him our Nabi, on that day of judgment he will testify that this was my ummati. And if there was a person who never ever read Durood Salawat, never followed the sunnah, never bothered the, the Musnoon du'as, didn't try to find out what the sunnah ta'limat of kitab were, what the sunnah tazkiyah was, they basically discarded multiple and massive amounts of nabuwa, then they should be scared whether they will be, whether the Prophet will bear witness that they are my ummati. Right? Don't people say today when they're upset at their son, when they say that my son, meri manta Right? That's what they say. When my son, if he doesn't follow me, they say, and the first way they try to scold their son, they'll tell him that you don't, what's the matter with you? You don't give me the status of father. Right? And then if it continues like that, then the father will say, okay, I don't, I don't give you the status of my son. Right? So we live an entire life which we didn't give Sayyidina Rasulullah the status of a Nabi. We should be worried on the judgment he may, we may come in front of me and says, I don't give you the status of an ummati because you didn't give me the status of a Nabi. So don't underestimate the sunnah of Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa Alright, speed. Indeed, we only made the Qibla that you were upon so that we could know, it means we could know, we could see, we could test, Right? Who would follow the Prophet ﷺ from you and who would turn, spurn him? Literally means spurn back on your heels. Who would disobey? What does this mean? That they were some of the munafiqeen from the Ahl Kitab who were following the Prophet ﷺ while they were praying towards Jerusalem. And when the Qibla would change and they wouldn't be able to do it anymore. And as when they prayed towards Baytul Muqaddas, their niyat that they were praying towards their own religion. And in terms of their own religious worship. They weren't making niyat that they were Muslims. Right? So they would be tested. Sometimes people ask this question, this, comes up, this question comes up in many eyes of Quran, many hadith. That what does it mean, Allah SWT saying, لِنَعْلَمْ That so that I would know, so that we would know. So Allah Ta'ala already knows. He doesn't need to do something to discover. He already knows. He didn't need to go through this exercise. Allah Ta'ala would have certainly already known who were untrue in their belief and their heart. So there are different ways of knowledge. Now I'm going to explain this to you in this way, that there's one knowledge that exists... Didn't Allah SWT already know? Yes, He knew. There's one level of knowledge that exists before somebody does something, and there's another level of knowledge that exists after the fact itself. Alright? And the difference in that, and it's sort of, a, sort of difficult Arabic to explain to you, that there's an ilm that exists before the amal, but there's a certain ilm that is additional after the amal becomes mutahakkak, after the action actually takes place. And what is that? That is the ilm of the jaza of that amal. And as before you do something, you can't face the consequences of it. So Allah Ta'ala knew that this is what they, that they weren't true in their belief. But they had to manifest that disloyalty in order for them to face the consequences. So what it means here is that so that now we would know to 
send those consequences on those people. You can't send the consequences until they do it. Right? Urdu is closer to Arabic if I explain it to you in this way that amal ke baad jazam mutahakkik hota hai. Amal se pehle jazam mutahakkik nahi hota. Take it? Alright. That's a very Arabic type of word there. Alright? Okay. وَإِنْ كَانَ لَكَبِيرَةً Now this can mean, number one, that indeed it was an enormous weighty task to change the Qibla. To change. إِلَّا عَلَى الَّذِينَ هَدَى اللَّهِ Except on those people whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent hidayah. It can also mean that it was a sin for those who didn't change, right? Except, obviously, those who Allah guided and they did change and they won't get the quote-unquote kabira guna. And indeed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not waste anything of your iman. This is because as some people thought that, okay, if the Qibla changed, then the 16, 17 months we were praying towards Bayt al-Maqadus, maybe they won't be counted. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, no, all of that counts. Because then you were following the hukum of Allah, now you were following the hukum of Allah. Nothing got wasted. All right. Indeed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is with all of humanity. Inna Allah bin nas. Not just bin mu'mineen. Inna Allah bin nas. Here again, Allah ta'ala is trying to invite them. The mercy keeps coming. Indeed, Allah Santa with all of humanity, Lara'uf, compassionate, and Rahim, all merciful. Indeed, we saw those who have spurned, indeed, we saw you. Now, Allah Santa is addressing the bottom kind of person. This is that verse. Indeed, we saw that you were continually turning your face towards above. And so now we are telling you. Now turn your face towards that Qibla that pleases you. So this was that verse of Revelation that told the Prophet to change the Qibla. And turn your face, it means turn your orientation in worship, right? Towards Masjid, towards the direction, Shatr means direction, of the Khan Kaaba of Baytullah. This Arabic word Shatr does not mean exact. Certainly if you're standing right in front of the Kaaba, you can pray exactly towards it. Even if you think you've used a compass or GPS, you cannot stand. Your feet cannot be aligned exactly that way. Many times you know that when you're a child, you give an example of two railroad tracks, right? And if one of them is even 0.00001% degree off, then they won't remain parallel, right? So just like that, even your feet are like, you can imagine your feet are like two railroad tracks, right? So you will be praying in the general direction of Masjid al-Haram. The Fuqaha said that you should try to pray as exact as you are able. Second, if you are not able to pray very exactly, if you're able to pray within 45 degrees either way, even then your prayer will count. And third, if you have no idea if you find yourself in a situation or a place where you don't know where the Qibla is, and there is no reliable, knowledgeable local Muslim to inform you, so you had to travel somewhere and you ended up in some, you know, small place like, I don't know, some Belgian airport, Allah Ta'ala save us from having to ever have to pray in a Belgian airport, I would think, because they don't seem to be very fond of us, right? But let's say you happen to be in Brussels airport, and you had a long layover, and you wanted to pray salah, and there weren't any Muslims around for you to ask. At that point, what you do is called taharri. Taharri akal means to the, you ask, it's like a mini istikhara, without going through the formality of istikhara, right? And you just ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala inspire your heart where it is. If you know a little bit, unfortunately the Muslims have lost that knowledge by looking at the sky, the sun, or night, the stars. People, Muslims and otherwise, historical people were able to tell direction and timing and season and month by looking at the sky. We've lost that knowledge, right? Because we have our phones and our cell phones, right? So then you try and then you pray whichever way you thought it was. And as long as you don't get accurate information within that prayer time, then the others you'd have to make it up. But if you don't, then that prayer counts. 
Right? Because your intention was pure. Okay? So all of that would also count. Even that third surah, even that third case would count as shatr, as playing in the direction. Uh, wherever you are, you should turn your faces towards the direction of Baytullah. Alright. And indeed, those who have been given the book, they know. They know. Right? This is because actually this was a sign that was mentioned about the Prophet in their books that he's going to pray towards the Kaaba. And in fact, before 16, 17 months, they used to mock that you're not fulfilling that sign. You're praying to our Baytul Muqaddas. Right? So they said they know They know it is truth that has come from their Rabb as well. And is not unknowing of everything that they do. However, even if you brought, well, the in means even if, even if you brought to those people who have been granted the book, Ahl Kitab, if even if you were to bring to them every single sign about you that has been mentioned in their books, even then they won't follow you. Even then they won't follow you. So Allah Ta'ala is also telling the Prophet, don't think now that I brought this sign that I'm the last Prophet who prays towards Makkah, they're going to start following you in droves. Even if you were to bring every single sign that is in their books, even then they wouldn't follow you. I, sorry, even then they wouldn't follow Qibla Taka, they wouldn't follow your Qibla, which can mean they literally wouldn't follow you in praying to Makkah Makkah, but means they wouldn't follow your orientation. They wouldn't accept the deen of Islam. And then Allah SWT says, and you should not follow their Qibla. Why? What happened here was that the Jews and Christians, when the Qibla changed, they told the Prophet that, okay, look, if you change it back, we'll all become believers. If you change it back, we'll become believers. So maybe Sayyidina Rasulullah because he was Rahmatullah Alameen, maybe because partly in his heart thought, well, okay, it was permissible to pray there originally. Maybe there was some drop of him that thought, or maybe he knew he couldn't, but he just thought, I wish I could change it back so that they will all become believers. I wish I had known that this was so important to them because he really wanted them to accept Imam. I wish I had known this was so important to them before I looked up asking Allah SWT to change it. So Allah SWT tells him, No, ma anta bitabin kiblatahum. You're not going to follow their Qibla. In fact, they don't even follow each other's Qibla. They don't even follow each other's literally direction in prayer or orientation towards Allah SWT. And if you were, were you to follow their desires after true knowledge has, been descent, has come down upon you, then you would be amongst the wrongdoers. So don't do it. This is actually what the first example of what we may show you from time to time. The, what I tell you, the Shahanshana, the majestic Khitab of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even to Nabi Akreem sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Obviously, Nabi Akreem would never dream of going against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But Allah ta'ala shows His might and majesty to all of His creation, even the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa Alright. Okay, those who have been given the book, they know you, they recognize you the way they recognize their own sons. So it's not a question that you need to bring signs so that they recognize you to be the last prophet. They already know you to be like that. And if there is a group from them that they conceal the truth, there is a group from them that is concealing this reality that they recognize you, even though they well know that you are the last prophet. But know that haq, truth and veracity is from your Rabb. And so don't be amongst the people who are doubters. For each and every either person or each and every ummah has a wijah, has an aim, has an object to which they will orient themselves. That is the object of their orientation means that they will turn their faces toward that. 
فَاسْتَبِقُوا الْخَيْرَاتِ And you should hasten and proceed with speed to do every good deed. What does this mean? That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling the Sahaba with a taqeed that you should don't hesitate. Switch the Qibla immediately. Don't worry. Don't worry about anything that the Jews and Christians are telling you. And this is also an important ayah for us to remember. Right? And so this is ayah number 148. That you must go speedily towards things that you know to be good. Go speedily towards things that you know to be virtue. Don't worry about what other people are saying. That's exactly what the, Allah Ta'ala is telling Sahaba. Don't worry about what the Jews and Christians are saying. Don't worry about their questions. You don't need to be able to answer every one of their questions before you do that good. You don't need to be able to rationally explain to them why the Qibla was changed before you pray. And you should think like that about people who sometimes challenge and threaten your Islam. It's not conditional for you. You don't have the ability to answer everybody's question. Right? You're not being able to answer their question. Doesn't mean Islam is not able to answer their question. And you not being able to answer the question doesn't mean that you should now stop your practice in Amal on Deen. If you know that deen to be khair, alright? Okay. Wherever you may be, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will bring you all together. Wherever you may be, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will bring you all together. What is this is showing? The unity of the Qibla. That throughout the world there will be mu'maneen in all types of latitudes and longitudes, but by praying in one shutter and praying in one direction, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is bringing them together. And you can see that beautifully when you see these widescreen photographs of Baytullah, right? And you see this thing that even impresses non-Muslims. That's the sight that shakes them. Right? They're moved by that sight. And they're moved by two things in that sight. The submission that is characterized by sajda. And number two, the unity. The complete symmetry. Can you look at those pictures? It's like, complete, it's like somebody drew completely perfect concentric circles around the Kaaba. Even up to the streets, even in 27th of Ramadan. Right? Okay, so that's what the Sponsor is saying here. Um, and wherever you are, Bahaythuma Kuntum. Yes, yeah, where, uh, no. Let's skip a line. Hawa innahu lalhaku, and indeed this is a truth that has come from your Rabb, and Allah Sponsor is not unknowing of what you do. And wherever you set out forth from, you should turn your face to the direction of the Qibla. So wherever you may end up traveling and migrating, wherever this Ummah may reach, you should face the Qibla. And wherever you are, heithuma kuntum, and wherever you are, so when you're traveling or when you're resident, you should turn your faces and your orientation. Now again, like I told you, I keep saying it, orientation, so you're Literally in Salah you should turn your bodies towards the Kaaba, but wherever you may be, your orientation should remain on the Markaz, the center of Millat Ibrahim. You're Muslim living in America, still your orientation is on Millat Ibrahim. You're Muslim living in Americanized Lahore, still your orientation is on Millat Ibrahim. Right? You're going to BNU or Beacon House uh, school system, or Lahore American school, and living in Defense in Clifton. Hmm? Wherever you may be, However you may be, wherever you may set forth, your orientation remains, that's who I am. I'm Makawi. Every Muslim is Makawi in spirit and in deed and in action and in sifat. That doesn't do with maskana, it doesn't do where you live in residence. It's not your domicile, it's your spiritual domicile. Right? That's what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying in the Quran. The Allah yakuna lin nasi alaykum hujja. So that people will have no hujja over you. Embody the Makkawi spirit everywhere you go, people will have no hujjah over you. إِلَّا الَّذِينَ ظَلَمُوا minhum, Except those who have gone astray or unjust from amongst them. 
وَلَا تَكْشَوْهُمْ Don't fear them. وَكْشَوْنِي Another very important ayah of Qur'an al-Kareem, ayah number 150, it's part of 150. hum. Don't fear them. Don't fear the naysayers. Don't fear the critics. When you do something for deen and somebody tries to bring you down, somebody tries to slam you, somebody is cynical, sarcastic with you, somebody mocks you, somebody critiques you, وَلَا hum. Don't fear them. وَكْشَوْنِي Allah Ta'ala says in Qur'an, and fear only me. This feeling of fear. An embarrassment should only be for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala breaking His rules. Because I want to complete my blessing on you by giving you this Kaaba. So Kaaba is one of the ultimate blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on this Ummah. So that you may be guided rightly guided. As we, as we sent up between you, now here is coming the same thing. The same thing we did before. كَمَا أَرْسَلْنَا فِيكُمْ رَسُولًا مِّنْكُمْ يَتْلُوا عَلَيْكُمْ آيَاتِنَا وَيُزَكِّيكُمْ وَيُؤَلِّمَكُمْ الْكِتَابَ وَالْحِكْمَةِ Now you will see that in this ayah the order has changed. Right? So we are looking at Surah Baqarah, verse number 151. And if you would go back, and so where did we go? We did this for you. If you go back to verse number 129, correct? You will see in 129 when Sayyidina, don't do it on the screen, when you go back to 129 in your books, by now you should all be proper students and have a Musaf quran in front of you. Right? 129, when Sayyidina Ibrahim made du'a, he said, his order of du'a was send a prophet who recites verses, who teaches them the meaning of those verses, who teaches them additional teachings to those verses and purifies them. He put tazkiyah purification forth. Here, however, in verse number 151, Allah subhanahu wa when saying he has accepted that du'a, and will indeed send a Rasul for those very four purposes that Sayyidina Ibrahim made that God inspired du'a with. But Allah changed the order. What did he put first? Yatlu alaykum. So talawat comes first. But second comes yuzakikum. Tazkiyah comes in second position. Why? Because you need tarbiyat first and then ta'lim. Very important. In deen of Islam, ta'lim and tarbiyah, ta'lim and tazkiyah, to use the Quran, should go together. Education, instruction, learning, study, erudition, ta'lim, should go together with tazkiyah, with spirituality, spiritual development, taqwa. They should go together. And ideally, tazkiyah should precede ta'lim. And that is why, unfortunately, some Islamic institutes of learning, they teach people who are not interested in tazkiyah. My hope from all of you is that you're interested in tazkiyah. <laughs> right? Because if I, I don't want to be teaching the next crackpot reformer of the next century, Right? A person who wants ta'lim but doesn't want tazkiyah, who wants the knowledge of Quran but doesn't want to follow the spiritual teachings of Quran. Right? Tazkiyah first, then ta'lim. And this is normally the method that I prefer to follow. We give instruction to those who want tazkiyah. Because you should give knowledge to the person who wants to practice it, not to the person who just wants to know it. Right? Because knowledge exists for the sake of practice. So therefore Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put tazkiyah first before ta'lim. Allahu Akbar. Alright, so this is important. Otherwise, then I've explained the rest of this. But uh, there's one extra part. And Allah Ta'ala is going to teach you by means of that Prophet what you didn't know. This can also mean what is not rationally attainable. Revelation and prophecy is going to transcend rationality. Allah Subhanahu through Quran and the Sunnah of Nabi Salam is going to teach you things that you could not have figured out on your own. Right? So therefore you cannot pin the foundations of deen on rationality when the deen transcends rationality. 
We could comment a lot about this. Ayah al saying here in Quran, Fadkuruni, remember me. Adhkurkum, I will remember you. This is another golden eye that you should remember, right? And this is ayah number 152, right? What is Allah saying here? So, Fadkuruni, you should make dhikr of me. Okay, Ya Allah, you are our Malik, our Khalik, our Rabb. Of course we should remember you. But Allah is saying, if you do zikr of me, Adhkurkum, I will do zikr of you. It's in order to get Allah's zikr of you that you do zikr of Him. So all of this emphasis in Qur'an on dhikr, udhkurullaha, dhikran kathira, the emphasis that the awliyaan mashayik put that do dhikr, do dhikr, do dhikr, is because they want you to get adhkurkum, and they wanted to get adhkurkum, they want Allah Ta'ala to remember them. When Allah remembers us, what does it mean? He sends hidayah on our heart. He softens hidayah, our heart for that hidayah. He makes us follow that hidayah. He increases us our, in, in our imani sifat. So the more you remember Allah, the more Allah will remember you. Washkarudi wala takfurun and be grateful to me, Allah Ta'ala says in the Quran, be grateful to me, wala takfurun, do, do not deny my blessings. Do, do not deny my blessings by being ungrateful. You can say do not deny me by denying my blessings by being ungrateful for them. And one way of doing shukr is obviously to acknowledge that everything we have is for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But the real way to do shukr is to use every such thing in the obedience of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if we use the blessings Allah Ta'ala has given us in His disobedience, like Allah Ta'ala gave us this incredible thing that all the physics and optics is yet unable to reproduce called the eye, and we use that in the disobedience of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala, so that's not washkuruli, that is takfuru. We're denying the blessings of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. And what did Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala give us that eye for? The purpose of that eye was that you would control it in this world so that in Akhirah you would see Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala in all of His beauty and splendor and majesty. So that in Akhirah you would get to gaze upon the husn of Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam and all of the anbiya and mursaleen. That's why we were given this eye. Not to look at the trivial, temporary, fleeting beauties of this world. So doing shukr means to use the blessings Allah Ta'ala gave us according to his will and wish, and to save that blessing for what he wants to give us. Allahu Akbar. Right? Ya ayyuhalladheena amunu sta'inu bis sabri wa salah. Another important line. That all you believe you should seek help from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So how do you do? Wa'iyaka nasta'in. Right? How are you going to do that? Sabr and salah. You would think salah would have come first, Right? Your akal would say first salah and then sabr. Allah Ta'ala said first sabr. So sabr means several things in the deen of Islam. Number one. So sabr doesn't just mean patience. Uh, let me do that first. Sabr does mean patience. To be patient when any adversity, difficulty, hardship comes over you. Second, sabr means to apply oneself with fortitude, himma, kuwata iradi, willpower, to do the commandments of the deen. Third, sabr means to persevere in doing so to have istikama. And fourth, sabr means to have self-control. In other words, to control our nafs from leading us to sin. So these are four broad meanings of sabr. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, look, that first ask, get, get help from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Seek help, from, seek help by means of sabr. And second, you should also seek help by means of salah. And what will you get if you do sabr? Inna allaha ma'as-sabirin. You will get Allah. It's not just that you will get some blessing, you will get some ease, 
you will get some risk. You will get Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Himself. He has promised us His ma'iyya, His intimate companionship and closeness to the people who are sabirin. Now sabirin means not a person who occasionally does sabr. Every time these words come in Arabic, sabirin, shakirin, it means a person who is permanently established on sabr. Means anytime anything happens, they have sabr, that's sabirin. So we are trying to become sabirin by showing certain moments of sabr, episodes of sabr. We are trying to become shakirin because sometimes we are grateful. So these sifati mu'minana should be permanently established inseparable features inside of us. You should not uh, or do not say about those who were slain in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that they are dead. Bal ahya'un. But instead they are alive. Walakin la tash'urun. But you are not able to perceive it. What does this mean? This is talking about those who were slain in jihad fi sabilallah. That they are not dead, they remain living. Why did this happen? This happened originally in Badr. In Badr there were 14 sahaba who became shaheed. Eight of them were, six were from the muhajirun and eight were from the ansar. And some people felt that, oh, now they've missed out. I mean, it was nice that our friends aren't with us anymore. They don't get to be with the Prophet anymore. They were taken away from this world. And obviously, if your world is a world in which you live with the Prophet there would be some feeling of sadness that they left this world, right? Right? So Allah SWT revealed this, said, no, no, don't call them dead. They're still alive. Now, what does this mean? That's a very long discussion. But one hadith in Bukhari, Sayyidina Rasulullah mentioned that their ruh, their spirits, are placed in, now, it says green birds, it could be green helicopters, right? They're placed in some vessel, because on their physical body, right? The physical body, and many times it's been slain and been wounded and is lying in the grave. So they're placed in some other type of carrier, and they're taking a tour of Jannah. That is what they're doing. So this is a very difficult concept, and I may have to explain this a little bit later, but this notion of barzakh. That when a person dies, they have their ruh and their body. And their ruh retains some relationship with the body that is six feet under the ground in the grave. But the ruh also, if you will, begins a relationship with a parallel dimension, with another plane of existence. Okay? And that is an unseen plane of existence. And that unseen plane of existence, among other things, includes Jannah. So the arwah or the souls of these real shuhada. Real shuhada, not, you know, real shuhada who gave their, offered their lives for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and their deen. There's another type of shahada which is called, this is called shahada hakiki. There's another type of shahada called shahada hukmi where a person is on the day of judgment raised with the sawab of a shaheed because they were killed unjustly and they died in an accident, right? So that is also something that maybe they were, you know, not so pious but they died in an accident. They'll get the sawab of a shaheed on the day of judgment. That's shahada hukmi. But this is talking about shahadat hakiki those who actually offered their lives for the sake of defending or establishing the deen of Islam on earth. And they were slain, right? Peace be Okay. Khair. And we will test, that surely and certainly we will test each and every, you, every one of you, bishayim, with something from fear, from hunger, and from a reduction in your possessions and wealth, a reduction in persons, and those your family and friends and relatives will die, and a reduction in thamarat and the provisions, or sometimes people translate this as the crop and harvest that you will be given. So Allah SWT is saying that every single person, irrespective of taqwa and iman, will be tested on this world. And all of these, Allah is, in other words, showing us what were those times when we were supposed to have sabr. 
So you're supposed to have sabr when you suffer some type of financial property loss. You're supposed to have sabr when a dear, dear person passes away. You're supposed to have sabr when you have a bad season, bad time at work, a bad crop, or you lose some things like that. These are all occasions for sabr. So bring glad tidings to the people who have sabr that even though they're being afflicted with these calamities and tests, but if they have sabr, then these tests are actually a mean of glad tidings for them because of the sabr that they will have. And who, who are the sabrin? So what's an indicator? What's an alamat? What's a symptom of the sabrin? الَّذِينَ إِذَا أَصَابَتْهُمْ مُصِيبَةٌ قَالُوا إِنَّا لِلَّهِ وَإِنَّا إِلَيْهِ رَاجِعُونَ That there are such people that whenever any calamity befalls them, they say, إِنَّا لِلَّهِ وَإِنَّا إِلَيْهِ رَاجِعُونَ That we are from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala we're going to return. That's our asal is the akhirah. This is just a momentary passing state of this world. If I'm ill today, I will be healthy tomorrow. If not, I was healthy yesterday. If not, I'll definitely be healthy in the akhirah if I'm pious. If I'm Financially straightened today, I will be, if I'm on taqwa, I will have financially mountains and castles and gardens in Akhirah, right? So they remember Akhirah. They remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They remember their nisbat with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Akhirah. So that is the surat of sabr. This is the bayan of the surat of sabr. This is explaining the manifestation and the way to adopt and enact and, uh, and implement sabr. Who and another attribute, uh, another symptom or description of the people of the Sabri, ulaika alayhim salawatum, no sorry, a, a reward that they will get, ulaika alayhim salawatum min rabbihim wa rahma. That these people who are Sabirin, who turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in these types of difficulties, they will get salawat, blessings min rabbihim from their rabb wa rahma, they will get mercy from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, al and they will also be rightly guided. In other words, that maybe if you have sabr in some worldly matter, in exchange for that sabr, Allah Ta'ala can increase us on our deen. Muhtadun, when you see there's a word hidayah, and then you add the ta. For those of you who study Arabic, this is babi iftiyal. Iftida means to follow guidance, to be guided, to submit to guidance, to be upon guidance. So what Allah Ta'ala is saying, that if you have sabr on dunyavi masail, you will actually get guided on deen. So there's a rupt between our behavior in dunya and the tawfiq that Allah Ta'ala sends us on our deen. Inna safa wal marwata min sha'a'irillah. That know that the hills of Safa and Marwa are from the emblems, the signs, the manifestations of the majesty of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Why is this being revealed? That because some of the pre-Islamic the mushrikeen, when they used to do their hajj, they also used to do sa'i between Safa and Marwa. And they used to place a lot of idols. And this was a major mushrikana thing. So up till now Allah Ta'ala has only mentioned Masjid al-Haram, Right? So some sahabar were unsure, okay, what about Safa and Marwa Sa'i, right? Are we supposed to do that? Is, this, is, it, is that okay? Is it okay for us to do it? Because it used to be something the mushrikeen used to do. So here Allah SWT is saying, no, you can do that. In fact, that that person who goes for hajj, the pilgrimage of the first pilgrimage of the season, or goes otherwise off-season, does a small pilgrimage, there's no problem. You should follow the command of doing Sa'i. There's no problem about the fact that the idols used to be there. The yatawafa actually means to make a circuit. It doesn't always mean circular circuit like tawaf and baytullah. Here it's referring to sa'i, which means linear circuits going back and forth to and from safan marwa. And that person who willingly does something that is good, that indeed Allah is appreciative. That's what shakir means. Appreciative. He's kadirdan. 
He will appreciate and value. He will reward you for the good you do. He will put the nur of taqwa in the heart for the ibadah that you do. And alim, and he knows all the good things you do. So don't worry. Every good thing you do for his name and his sake, seeking his pleasure, he will know it. And he will certainly appreciate it and grant you the according reward to it. Indeed, those who have been concealing what was revealed, what we revealed upon them from our clear signs and from our guidance after 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 we made clear for humanity fil kitab in the book all right so this is notion that Allah again there's a kitab to humanity ulaika so those people who conceal who have the book who conceal what's in the book and what was in the book wasn't revealed just for them what was revealed for all of humanity they were supposed to share it so we can think like that as well that the muslim parents who don't share teachings of quran they're also doing they're also doing katam they're also concealing because the Qur'an was supposed to be shared and learned and taught and lived. And if we're just concealing it, we can also be, misdaq, we can also be, fall under the meaning of this verse. So what happens to those, in any case, I also talking, what happens to those Ahl Kitab who hide their book? Ula'ika yal'anuhumullahu wa yal'anuhumullainun. So this is already explained to you that Allah Ta'ala will cast them outside His mercy. It may say curse in your translation. Allah Ta'ala will cast them outside His mercy and the others. So who are the La'inun? This can be many groups. First group is the angels. Because just like the angels bring the salawat, they bring the mercies from Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala, they can also bring the casting out from the mercy of Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala. And it may also be that, and it's going to come just shortly, it's going to come today inshallah, on the Day of Judgment, those people who followed the Ahlul Kitab and the scholars of Ahl Kitab hid what was in the book. On the Day of Judgment, they will curse their own rabbis and priests that you hid this from us. That you hid this from us. Alright? But even of them, even those who hide the book, who change the word of God, if they make tawbah, wa aslahu, and they make amends, right? Wa bayinu, and they clarify means they share what was hidden, they reveal what they concealed. فَأُولَٰئِكَ أَتُوبُ عَلَيْهِمْ Allah says that I will accept their tawbah. I will turn in reprieve and repentance and forgiveness to them. وَأَنَا التَّوَابُ rahim Don't you know that I am التَّوَابُ rahim That I am the being who always is the most relenting and the most, all the most merciful. Allah Ta'ala apun ta'aruf karwane. Nay samjhe. Allah Ta'ala is introducing himself and what does he say? وَأَنَا التَّوَابُ rahim Subhanallah wa bihamdi, may Allah Ta'ala accept all of our tawbah, and may He send His rahmah on each and every one of us. Indeed, those who disbelieve, wamatu, and they die in a state of unbelief. Well, see, they die in a state of unbelief, then upon them, it's them. Allah Ta'ala is saying is that my muhlat, my period of tawbah lasts until you die. If you die in a state of unbelief without making that tawbah, that's when you get the, now you have sisi malaikas coming here, la'amtullahi wa malaikati. Well, malaikati, you will get the distancing from mercy from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the casting out physically from that mercy into Jahannam by the angels. Wanasi ajma'in and all of humanity after death, all of humanity on the day of judgment will have a feeling in their heart that those who disbelieved in Allah and died on disbelief deserve to be cast out of the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and placed into Jahannam. So right now, many of us, we feel that, well, you know, maybe nice if nobody could go to hellfire, Right? Of course, then I've asked you if Hitler should go to hell, or if I ask you about some other people, you would say, okay, they should go. If I ask you about Abu Lahab and Jal, you would say they should go. But on the Day of Judgment, it will be the feeling of all of humanity 
that those people who are untrue to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala deserve to be put outside the reach of His mercy. Right? Khalidina fiha, they will dwell in that jahannam forever. And that punishment will never be eased up or lightened up upon them, and nor will they receive any reprieve. Walahimun there will be no reprieve for them. Wa ilahukum ilahu wahid. And know that your ilah, your God, Allah subhanahu is one Allah. La ilaha illahu, and there is no being of worship other than Him. Al Rahman al Rahim, and again, how does Allah Taala do His taraf here? Al Rahman al Rahim, and He is the one who is all merciful and sending of all mercy. So who else would you want to obey? It means, is there any other being who is Al Rahman al Rahim that you are setting themselves, setting them up as a rival to Allah Subhanahu wa Taala? So if Allah alone is Al Rahman al Rahim, that He alone should be your ilah, He alone should be your ma'bud. This is a long ayah that indeed in the creation of the firmaments, whatever is above, in the skies, firmaments, heavens, everything that is above, and the earth that you are upon, and the alternating of the, from night to day, and the large ships that traverse across the oceans and seas, carrying goods that are a means of benefiting people, and that which Allah subhanahu wa has sent down from above in terms of water, by means of which he enlivens and revives the barren and fertile ground after revives the ground after it be, become infertile, and Allah subhanahu wa disperses in that earth all types of creatures from every type of creatures. What the al riyahi this means the what we call the coursing or blowing the currents of the winds, the coursing or blowing or currents of the winds was sahabi and the clouds, musakhirina that are suspended between the what is above the skies and the earth. The ayatin, all of these physical cre- aspects of creation, all of them contain signs. For a community who has some sense. Has some sense. And really, I don't have time to do that for you, but I suggest you yesterday that you know the cosmological astrophysical explanation, which they offer as a rival to creation, is actually nonsensical. I'll just tell you one thing, and those of you who are more young and interested can research this, they call it the multiverse. So they come up with this idea that, okay, it's a question of probability. So when you use math, and actually pure mathematics is the first way to defeat atheism. And pure mathematics at its highest form is pure spirituality. When you use math and you talk about what is the probability that a planetary body would have formed at this precise distance from the sun, it's extremely small. If it were, we were closer to the sun, it would be too hot to sustain life. If we were just a little bit more distant from the sun, it would be too cold to sustain life. What is the probability that this atmosphere would contain those elements that would give rise to water, to give rise to oxygen? You keep multiplying all of the probabilities. You come up with something called one over infinity. It's almost zero. It's a mathematical, pure mathematical theory. Irrespective of deen or atheism will tell you it's a zero probability. So how? Because there's atheist scientists can only bow to the god of mathematics. So they came up with this idea called the multiverse. They say that there are actually infinite number, infinite number of universes have come into creation. Now if you have infinite number of creations, then one out of infinity, the probability is one over infinity. They postulate, and there's no delil, there's no scientific evidence for multiverse. There's no scientific evidence that infinite number of universes have existed. But they say that that's what's happened because infinite years have passed when you can accept all these infinities from your own abstract, can you not accept the infinite existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? That's actually a more sensible explanation. And at least there's some proofs of that in terms of books, prophets. We have proofs, right? They have zero proof for infinite universes. 
and that infinite time is existent. There's no proof for that. There's no scientific proof for that. Right? So, oh, how did I... Yes, so yakilun, yes, so we're talking about akum, right? Likome yakilun. For people, so yakilun doesn't mean the rationality, atheistic, scientific method. Yakilun, people who have sense to discern, people who have observed these things with an open mind and an open heart, right? Then their sense will lead them to think, okay? From amongst humanity, there are those people who have taken other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as idols, rivals, partners, Right? Yuhibbunahum. And they love those idols, rivals, and partners. Kahum billahi. As they should have loved Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Walladhina amanu ashaddu humman lillah. Another important ayah. Another important ayah. Verse number 165. If I'm looking correctly. Right? And indeed those who believe are stronger. Stronger in their love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They don't love rivals. Now this is what Shana literally may mean idols, but it also means any rival. Do we, is there any person that we love more than we love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? That's a problem. Do we love our own wishes more than we love Allah ta'ala's wishes for us? That's a problem. Is there any person we love more than Sayyidina Rasulullah That's a problem. Is there any lifestyle we love more than the lifestyle the Prophet led and left for us and bequeathed to us as his legacy? That's a problem. But the people of Iman are stronger. They always prefer Allah. Allah first. That's who a mu'min is. I mean, Allah first human being. Prophet first human being. Deen, Quran, first human being. وَلَوْ يَرَ الَّذِينَ ظَلَمُوا إِذْ يَرَوْنَ الْأَذَابِ Now what is, if they could see, those who are transgressing, if they could see that when they will see the punishment, أَنَّ الْكُوَّةِ لِلَّهِ جَمِيعًا That indeed all might in entirety belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. Remember, Lam for Iqtisas. Lillahi belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. Wa anna Allah shadeedul adha. Allahu akbar And just as mighty as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, as severe will be his punishment on those who disobey his command. Now what's going to happen is on... Uh, this is that ayah that I was telling you about on the Day of Judgment. So on the Day of Judgment, those alladhina tubi'u, those who were followed. What does this mean? So ABC is following XYZ. ABC says, I'm not going to follow Islam because of XYZ. So those who they were following, those who were being followed, we have nothing to do with them. In other words, on the Day of Judgment, somebody will present this excuse to Islam, I'm only doing what XYZ told me to do. That's why I didn't accept Islam. So I will call XYZ, XYZ, I don't even know this. <laughs> I have nothing to do with this person. And the person will be stunned. It's because if you, I didn't do this. <laughs> right? Same thing with the Muslims. If somebody pushes you and forces you not to do something on the day of judgment, you won't be able to tell us, that no, 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 but they told me not to do it. They used their peer pressure on me. Those peers will say, but well, you don't know who you are. <laughs> we have no recollection of that pressure you say we put on you as your peer. Right? And that's what Allah SWT is saying in the Quran. And then there's also second thing they'll see. So first they're going to see how the people they follow totally disclaim them, right? Disown them. Say we have nothing to do with them. And then they're also going to see the adab. Allahu Akbar. Can you imagine that moment that will come upon them? Okay, so this is a good word you have here, disown. 
right? So they will disown you, right? Sorry, I wouldn't say you. The people who follow, those who are followed will say, well, we said we had another chance to return to the world so that we may disown them. That's the next ayah, all right? So what will happen over here? Uh, they will, all the bonds will be severed. And what will they say? So those who were following, if we had the chance, we would disown them ourselves the way that they have disowned us. That's what we would do. But there's no chance now. <laughs> His life is finished. Now you're in front of Allah SWT. كَذَلَكَ يُرِيهُمُ اللَّهُ أَعْمَالُهُمْ Such will be the way that Allah Ta'ala will show them their deeds. حَسَرَاتٍ By making them feel, you know, حَسْرَةٍ Making them feel a yearning and a, and a sadness and a, a longing alayhim over the things that they did. They will feel حَسْرَةٍ Over the things that the sadness over what they did and longing that they could go back and change what they did. وَمَا هُمْ بِخَارِجِينَ مِنَ النَّارِ But they will never ever be people who leave the fire of Jahannam. يَا أَيُّهَا النَّاسِ O humanity! That you should eat from those things that are on this earth that are number one halal and number two tayyib. One way these two words have been explained is halal means lawful, i.e. not haram. And tayyib means those things that are halal and nobody else's haq is joined with it. So don't, don't eat pork, eat steak, and don't eat somebody else's steak. <laughs> or don't eat pork, eat steak, and don't eat unlawfully acquired steak. Another way tayyib has been mentioned is pure, noble. So you have categories in the end of Islam. One thing is that which is permissible. And then there's something which is more preferable, more pure, more virtuous. That's called tayyib, right? That's called tayyib. So here when it's talking about eating, it means earning, because you're going to eat from your earnings, right? So it means here earn, earn halal and tayyib. It also means eat, it means eat, but it also means earn. And this is a very tricky thing in this day and age, to find a halal earning, let alone to find a tayyib earning, right? But you should always, halal to you must confine yourself to, and you should want and search and hope for the tayyib. And if you're not sure if your halal is tayyib, you can make it tayyib by using those earnings for, in obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, using those earnings to spend on yourself and your family, but in activities that will please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? I'm oftentimes amazed by how many people in Pakistan have the ability and money to go for Hajj, but they don't go for Hajj? How many of them who may have even have gone for Hajj once have the ability and money to go for Umrah occasionally and to keep remembering and loving Makkah Makkah, but they don't go? Right? They just don't go. So that's another way to make your earnings stay, to use them well, to use them for pure and noble purposes. That's another way to make our earning stay. And do not follow the whisperings and tricks and deceptions of shaitan. Indeed, he is your die-hard manifest enemy. Clear, open, die-hard enemy. That is what shaitan is. What does he do? Indeed, he commands you bisu'i to do sin and evil. Walfashai to do vulgarity and immodesty. Allah and he tries to get you to say things about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala concerning Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that you don't even know what you're saying. So Shaitan sometimes one one way was whispering that it's okay Allah Ta'ala maaf Right? And then you say it's okay. You're doing guna. You have full, not not without knowledge, not majbur, ilman iradatan, fully knowingly, fully deliberately do a sin. And you say Allah Ta'ala maaf That's this. 
Antakulu alallahi malatatlamun. That you are saying things concerning Allah, you are putting words in the mouth of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you are having understanding of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which is not according to what you know. It's not according to what you know. So shaitan, that's his ultimate thing. He wants us to misunderstand Allah. One of the tricks of shaitan, one of his goals in life, is that we should misunderstand Allah. Allah now that's enmity, right? What could be more diehard enmity than that? To make an abd mu'min, huh? a servant and slave and believer in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, misunderstand their rub. And we cry over the misunderstandings between family members. How much, how many tears should be said over the misunderstandings human beings have about their rub, about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So if it is said again, it's going back to Al-Kitab, if it's said to them, follow what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed. Qalu, what will they say? Bal nattabaya ma alfayna alayhi aba'ana. That should be, okay, what's going on here? Let me explain. These next two ayahs are, what are the Al-Kitab going to present right now? They're going to present their forefathers. This is an important thing. And there are two types of forefathers you can have. One is to have forefathers who were wrong. If you follow forefathers who were wrong, because they were your forefathers, that is wrong. And a second way is to have forefathers who were right. Like so many times so far in Surah Baqarah and in Surah Yusuf, Surah Yusuf, I can't remember the verse number right now. I think verse number 8, but I'm not sure. In Surah Yusuf, Sayyidina Yusuf says, he uses this word, Abba, forefathers. But who does he use it for? These same people, Sayyidina Ibrahim, Ismail, Ishaq, So Allah Ta'ala is trying to tell them that you should follow your forefathers. You should not follow your forefathers when they are wrong, but you should follow your forefathers when they are correct. The reason I mention this is that unfortunately there are some people, and there have even been one or two very good people in history, who use this ayah, right? And this ayah is sometimes about Jews, but it's actually more even about the mushrikeen. And the mushrikeen were persistent on their shirk by saying, look, our forefathers were worshipping idols here in the Kaaba and everything was fine with them, right? Some people take this ayah and use it on other Muslims. So they'll say, let's say for example, they don't believe in Hadith. So they say you're following your forefathers, Imam Bukhari, Imam Muslim, they use this eye on them. Or if they don't believe in fiqh, they say, oh, you're following your forefathers, Imam Shafi, Imam Malik, Imam Nifa, they use this eye on them. No. Again, I told you yesterday or day before that it's not proper other with Quran. But when Allah Ta'ala has revealed an ayah about mushrikeen, kalamullah about mushrikeen, to hijack that sentence and use it on mu'mineen, this is one of the greatest disrespects that a person could do on Quran. Right? If you want to accuse somebody of doing something wrong, you don't use, don't use Allah's kalam to do it, right? And obviously the words Allah Ta'ala has used for mushrikeen should, are so intense, it should never be used on mu'mineen on one another. It should never be used on mu'mineen on one another. So it's unfortunate, and even those good people who did so, we hope that Allah Ta'ala will forgive this and overlook it as a slip that they made. That's it. That's all we say. Alright? Okay. Uh, and did their forefathers, did they not know anything? Were they not people of akal? Did they not ascertain or discern anything? And they, were, they did not know anything, nor were they rightly guided. And the likeness of those people who disbelieve is like that person that you call, you, you call to a person and that person cannot hear anything. 
Let me explain. It literally says du'a. It means that that person cannot hear anything except a call and a beckon. In other words, they are summum bukmun umyun. They are entirely deaf, mute, blind, all of that. فَهُوَ لَا يَعْقِلُونَ And they are people who don't have any sense. So what does it mean that you are trying to call to them, you are trying to appeal to them? They cannot hear anything except sound. That's what Allah said, this, this metaphor here. They can hear sound, they can't hear sense. As far as sounds, they can hear it. As far as calls and beckons, it means sounds, they can hear it. But as far as sensible speech goes, which is Qur'an al-Karim is the most sensible of speeches, they are immune to it. They are deaf, dumb, and blind when it comes to that. So we're ended on Surah Baqarah, Surah number 2, verse number 171. Now in these next 45 minutes or so, we're going to go at a little bit of speed. So I can try to catch up to the point where I want to end today. So the example of calling those who disbelieve is such as someone who is beckoning at an animal that hears nothing but a call and cry. I can perceive sound but cannot make any sense of anything. They are deaf, dumb, and blind and do not understand. Oh, you believe, eat of the good things we have provided to you and be grateful to Allah Subhanahu if it is He whom you really worship. He has only prohibited, prohibited for you the corpse, the cadaver, blood, the flesh, uh, uh, blood, pork, and that upon which a name other than Allah Subhanahu has been invoked. Whomsoever is compelled by necessity, neither for the sake of pleasure, nor transgressing the commandments of Allah Subhanahu there will be no sin on them if they eat one of these things. Indeed, Allah Subhanahu is most forgiving in the Allah. Alright, so this is the ayah that is talking about now there's going to be a series of legal rulings that are going to be coming in Qur'an. This is the ayah that is talking about what is permissible to eat. Alright, so what here Allah subhanahu ta'ala is saying is that you should eat of the things that are tayyibat. Kulu min tayyibat. Eat of those things that are pure and lawful and wholesome. And what can you not eat? A corpse. So a corpse simply means that when an animal is slaughtered, when an animal dies, even if an animal dies a natural death. So if a cow dies of old age, you cannot go cut and eat it. So that is why in our tradition we try to kill the cow before it dies of old age. Yes, unfortunately. Right? In these days apparently animal rights activists in one of these European countries again are trying to have some fit over this issue. Right? Allahu Akbar. You know, for them really animal rights is more than Palestinian rights. There are more activists worry about the dolphins who die in certain oceans. I'm not saying I would love the dolphins not to die as well. But you have to look at priorities, right? What are you going to raise a hue and cry over? And if you raise a hue and cry over the dolphins who are dying due to tuna fishing, and you're oblivious to human death and you call it collateral damage, this is a problem, right? What if the tuna fisher says the dolphin is collateral damage, <laughs> right? He could say the same thing. Something to think about. Right? Something to think about. The human rights. And this is a universal thing. Every human being would want that there should be no killing. This is guaranteed. This is very simple. And everybody wants to lead a life and be in a society and live in a world where there's no killing within society or between societies. Right? This is the ultimate aim. And the Islamic system, if it had been followed properly, would have led to such a system. But I'm going to explain that. That's coming in a little bit. Here, I was talking to you about what you can eat. So you can't eat things that are already have died naturally. You cannot eat blood. Now, what does it mean by blood here, right? So sometimes in you know, Western countries, they offer you a steak, rare, medium, rare, medium, or well done. What you have to do is you have to take the meat and you have to wash out the blood from it a reasonable amount. Obviously, it remains red because blood is in you know, the capillaries of that flesh that you're eating. But once you've washed out a reasonable amount and then you cook it, 
After that point, once you cook it, then obviously there may still be a little bit of blood in it. You can eat that meat. Right? You can eat that meat. And anything to do with the pork. So here it says, and yes, it does literally say, I wouldn't say flesh, but it says the meat. Lahm means meat. Gurt. It's not jilt, right? The meat of pork. It doesn't mean, though, you could try to get around this and say, I eat the charbi of the pork, right? Or I eat the bones of the pork. Actually, it's clearly mentioned in hadith that every single thing about the pig is prohibited. So much so that you should be careful about your shoes because in some countries they make suede called pig suede and you don't want to have suede shoes like that. So the way to get around this in Australia, they have a lot of lambs. So if you want to get shoes, you should buy shoes which have Australian suede because that is lamb suede. All right? Maybe something small. Many people think this is a very small thing. But if it's a small thing within your reach, right? This is our problem. So we don't realize that they're small things of taqwa, but they're within our reach. And you would always want to do what's within your reach. And if you don't have taqwa, you take any drop of taqwa you can get. Just like there's a store owner and business isn't going good. If somebody walks into a store and even buys something of just a hundred rupees, he gets happy. Right? Because at least he got something. Just like that, even if me and you can manage to do amal on these small things of taqwa, well, these small things will add up. And maybe by doing the small thing that is in our reach, Allah Ta'ala will give us the spiritual strength to do the big thing that was out of our reach. Right? Okay. And anything that has been made, has been slaughtered with the name of something other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. With the name of other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is the issue of dhiba and uthiyah. We must eat meat that is slaughtered in the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? You must eat meat that is... And this is the problem that many Muslims, when they go to non-Muslim countries, they become very lax about this. Sometimes they even say, Bismillah parkar kind. When Allah ta'ala is saying, Bismillah karkar ziba karo. Right? Allah Ta'ala is saying, take the name of Allah when you take the life. And it makes sense. When you're taking an animal life, Allah Ta'ala gave that animal life. And yes, He has made animal life forms subservient and to serve the needs of humanity. Allah Ta'ala wants that He should be remembered and His name should be taken when that life is taken. And if you didn't take it when the life was taken and now you want to take it before your fork is taken, that's making a complete mockery of the deen. Really, it's, it's outrageous to say that. That was Bismillah Parker Khalid. That's an outrageous thing to say. There's no basis for that at all anywhere in the day. And you know, I will tell you that there is a big hujat now in this world and they're called vegetarians. They can leave all meat for the sake of their own personal philosophy, living in California, they're all over the world now. So can a Muslim not leave some meat, that meat which has not been taken in the name of Allah, and doesn't that make sense that only life has, should be taken in the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala if He has permitted it? If He's permitted that we can eat animals and kill them for our pleasure, our consumption pleasure, for your ghost biryani, right? That's your pleasure. You should take His name. It's His haq that His name should be taken when a life that He gave creation is taken. So it's a very major teaching, a very major teaching, not to be taken lightly at all. Eat vegetarian, order the vegetarian meal on the airlines, right? Eat yogurt, eat salad, eat fruit. The vegetarians do it every day of their life. You have to do it for a three-day business trip. Three days. Itna kacha iman. That you get, you sold the name of Allah subhanahu What did you sell? Islam, you sold the name of Allah subhanahu for the sake of having that stake in Bangkok. Allahu Akbar kameedah don't want to be so weak in our iman, right? What is food to us? We're going to show Allah in Ramadan. What is food to us? It's nothing. We're just about to do this exercise in Ramadan. 
Food to us is nothing. We can go without food altogether if that's what you want. Forget with going out, for going without the steak for a few days when we're on a business journey or we're on a plane flight. Hmm? Literally, so weak imam. They have a Muslim who's going to pick them up in New York and take them home for dinner and serve them halal food. It's just a matter of hours, but still they eat the non-halal food on the plane. Oh, come on. Who is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and what is his name and when should that name be taken? For us to think about. For us to think about. For us to think about. Alright. That person who was forced out of necessity, I read that for you. That person who was forced out of necessity, right? And they're not seeking pleasure, they're not transgressing. They're not rebelling against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And they are not transgressing the commandments of Allah. This has to do with you're genuinely starving. If you're absolutely starving of famine, not that you're feeling kind of hungry on the plane, that you're absolutely starving of famine, that your life is in danger, you will die unless you eat something. And the only thing available to you. So there is no fruit and salad on that tray. It's all pork or all chicken or all meat. Then you may eat only as much of that as you need to sustain your life. Alright? Okay. For that person, even then, that person has to ask for the forgiveness and mercy of Allah. This is the shara. Even that person who does it when there was no sin, the act is so profane and vulgar to eat that which Allah hasn't permitted us to eat, even out of necessity, that when they, they should turn to Allah Ta'ala forgiveness and they would find in the law of Rahim that Allah Ta'ala is all forgiving, is all merciful. Indeed, those who hide, really those who conceal that which Allah Ta'ala has revealed. Why? Because they're exchanging for that book. What are they getting? A paltry sum, a small price, some fame in this world, some status in this world. They hide the commandments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and make things easier for people so they get a TV show. They get some fame, they get some celebrity, they get a shabbat from someone. Right? You, when people say that to me, I get scared. When they say, oh, you're a very reasonable Muslim or scholar. Don't call me that. Don't call me aqalmand alam. I don't like that. Because deen is not on the basis of aql. I'm not happy if people say that to me. And I tell them, I tell them. Right? Because I don't want that I taught you ilm for the sake of being praised by you. Or fame or popularity or celebrity status. No. No. We don't want that at all. You should love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. All fame and celebrity and popularity belongs to Allah. Allah ta'ala should be your greatest hits. Hmm? All Allah. Every track is Allah. Allah, 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 Allah. Mazid. Mazid that. Alright. So these are people who will fill nothing in their bellies except the fire of Jahannam. This Allah is describing it. What is going in their stomachs? The fire of Jahannam is going to go in their stomachs. وَلَا يُقَلِّمُهُمُ اللَّهُ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامِ And Allah subhanahu will not speak to them in the Day of Judgment. وَلَا يُزَكِّيهِمْ And Allah Ta'ala will not purify him with his mercy on the Day of Judgment. وَلَهُمْ أَذَابٌ أَلِيمٌ And they will suffer extremely painful punishment. أُولَيْكُ الَّذِينَ اشْتَرُوا الظَّلَالَةً بِالْهُدَى There are those who have traded guidance by, they've acquired misguidance by trading guidance for it. Well, Adaba bil Makfra, they could have been forgiven by Allah Spanta, but instead they traded that for his punishment. And they won't have the ability to handle Jahannam. They won't have the fortitude to endure Jahannam. They won't be able to last in Jahannam. So they shouldn't try to earn that Jahannam for themselves. Right? 
So indeed, part of the Qur'an al-Karim is very strong. This is because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent down the book with haq as the truth. And indeed, those who differ and disagree concerning the book, lafi shikakin, they are in discord and schism, ba'id, in massive discord and schism amongst themselves. This is the famous ayah called Ayatul Bir that I had mentioned to you. By the way, in the first day when I did Surah Baqarah, I told you Ayatul Nur, Ayatul Nur is not Surah Baqarah. What I meant to say was Ayatul Kursi and Ayatul Bir. These are the two major ayat. Obviously, Ayatul Nur is in Surah Nur, right? So the two major ayat are in Surah Baqarah. If you're on the first day, that was meant to be Ayatul Bir and Ayatul Kursi. So this is now Ayatul Bir. Laysal Bir. What does Bir mean? Bir is a word that is very close to Taqwa. Bir, maybe you've seen also this word, the Abrar. Huh? Abrar of the people who have bir. Means, you know, it, I would really say virtue. I would maybe, in English, if we had to sort of map words, I would call taqwa piety and bir virtue. Real virtue, pure goodness, right? Real virtue and pure goodness isn't simply merely turning your face towards one direction or the other. Literally towards east and west. Now, it's not all about the qibla. Even if you were, oh, hypocrites, to turn towards Makkah Makkah, even that wouldn't count as bir. Right? However, what is bir? Man amana billahi, that person who believes in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the last day and all of the angels and the book and all of the prophets and that person who gives money ala hubbihi. Either it means that they give money out of the love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or they give money despite the love they have for that money because they want to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Who do they give that money to? They give that to their relatives, they give it to the orphans, they give it to the poor, they give it to the traveler. Wasailin and they give that to those who are truly needy and ask out of desperation and need. So there's the professional beggar, and there's the person who's asking out of desperation and need. You normally can't tell the difference between the two. What some people do, I've actually sat with people, and what they do is they actually look at the jisamas of the person, and they think if the person looks like they're quite healthy and eating, then they don't give. Yeah, I, it's a very big problem in Pakistan, right? And sometimes, you know, you, you need a collective solution. And New York is the same. They have the homeless. There's the homeless people of Manhattan. They haven't been able to solve that problem as a collectivity. People in Pakistan haven't been able to solve the issue of beggars. So the real solution is collective. So the individual amal I'm going to tell you isn't a solution to poverty, right? Or isn't a solution to why do people feel that begging should be a profession as opposed to maybe doing some other honest profession. You should try. You may not always be able to give. No one is always able to give. And sometimes you may feel in your heart for a particular person, you may feel in that instant they're generally not worthy. But even sometimes in those cases, you're not always going to give everyone every time. But even obviously, if you feel in your heart the person is worthy, you should really try to give. And if you get a feeling in your heart that that person isn't deserving, even some of, the, some of those times you should still try to give just with this intention that Allah spawns at the end of the day, whether it's tawfiq, whether it's sense, but you have put me on this side of the equation and you put him on that side of the equation. And there's nothing I did in my life to save myself from being on that side of the equation. Or if it's a woman, you could think that I'll have nothing else I give out of shukr that my wife is not a woman who has to stand on the traffic light. Even as a professional beggar, at least you've given her izzat that she doesn't have to stand like that, that my baby isn't being used to create an emotional response. So you should give out of shukr. So either you give because you think they're mustahik, and sometimes when you don't think they're mustahik, you give out of shukr. And sometimes when you don't think they're mustahik, sometimes you may not be able to give. But when you don't give, you should never be rude. You should never, you know, give them a dirty look. Right? You, should give, you shouldn't go bhagana nitsa. You shouldn't give them a dirty look. If, they, if you have to engage, you should tell them up, kisi agisipuchli, ask somebody else. Right? That's it. Don't engage in any negative 
behavior with anybody who is asking. But here, Quran al-Karim, the Arabic was sa'ilin means those who ask out of need and desperation. So obviously those should be given money. And they give money to free slaves. And who are they? The people of regular Shabbos to prayer. They pay their zakat and they fulfill the oaths and pledges that they take whenever they take such pledges. And they are patient and steadfast in all types of hardship and adversity. And at the time of, uh, it can literally mean at the time of fighting and at the time of war. How is he translated it for you here? Battle. Okay, so at the time of fighting and at the time of war, right? Or battle. They are the people who have been true and been true to their iman. And they are the people who are people of taqwa, people of piety. O you who believe, Qisas has been made mandatory upon you in matters of murder. Okay. Now Qisas is the Islamic laws pertaining to what should happen when a person dies. Very briefly I will tell you that the first thing is capital punishment. There's a punishment for outright murder, what we would call in English first degree homicide. The punishment for that is death. However, the waratha, the inheritors of the murder victim, if they decide collectively or even if any one of them decides, the reason for this is a principle in Shia called al-hudud tandaru bishubahat, that the legal punishments of Allah subhanahu wa will be dropped at the slightest indication. So even if the person had 20 sons and one son said, I'm fine with the diyat. And the other 19 say, no, we want the guy who killed our dad to be put to death. Just that one said who said, I'm fine with the diyat, now the punishment will change and he won't be killed. The murderer will not be put to death, but instead a diyat will be taken from him. Diyat is a certain amount of money, certain number of camels which can be converted to whatever currency of the time that is given then, not that money can in any way compensate for life, but you can view it as a monetary penalty, right? And the reason why this option is given because some people... You see, when they're, let's say, especially if a man of the family is murdered, sometimes that family was quite poor. And they were utterly dependent on that man for earning. So rather than having the widow maybe be put in a difficult situation or children be put in a difficult situation, that maybe some good can be brought out of this evil in the sense that at least you can save them from further evil, that they don't have the financial support of that man anymore, so maybe they can take a diet. But that's not just for men, it's for anything. Women, children, slave, and that's what the eye is going to tell you. Okay? So the free person will be, will be, if a free man kills a free man, then the free man will be murdered. If a slave kills a slave, the slave will be murdered. If a female kills a female, the female will be murdered. What did this mean? This meant that if a woman is a murderer, in pre-Islamic Arabia, you couldn't punish that woman, you'd punish the men of her clan. Tribal justice, right? And you have that here, I don't know what it's called, Karo, Kari, or, you have things like that going on in Pakistan, Right? No, Allah Ta'ala says if, the woman, if there's a murder happens to be a woman, we'll take her life. The, the victim, the, the criminal, the criminal will be the one who's punished, even if it's a woman. Not the male relative of that criminal. Alright? Okay. However, if a person is forgiven by their brother, right, then the recourse of the latter is to pursue the former for blood money with fairness. What does this mean? That if you... If, fellow Muslim it's talking about, right? If the murderer is forgiven by the relatives of the victim, the fellow Muslim, then he should pay the diet in an appropriate time frame and they should also expect payment in an appropriate time frame. That's all it is, right? Tafifum bi rabbikum rahma, And this is a lessening of the hukam from your rab and this is a mercy from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that person who transgresses, after this, after it has been revealed, falahu adhabun alim, then they will have a painful punishment. And you have in kisas haya. 
Now, what is going on here? Naftisas technically actually means that you're going to kill. So actually the response is saying, in this punishment, capital punishment, there is life for you. Why? Because capital punishment will serve as an effective deterrent against murder. And therefore then you won't have murder. And when you don't have murder, then you will have life and sanctity of life and preservation of life. And every system of even secular criminal law, the whole purpose of criminal law is deterrence. It's to get people, inflict punishments, and make those punishments deter people from committing that crime. So Allah subhanahu wa is saying is that's the only reason capital punishment is there. Not out of vengeance, not out of anger, not out of wrath, not that murder should be met with murder. No, but we should make this punishment of capital punishment so that it deters people from committing murder so you can live in a murder-free society. That's what Hayatun means. That in, the, in, in decreeing capital punishment for murder, Allah is saying, I'm trying to create for you a murder-free society, a society of life. Ya ulul albab. Albab comes from this word lub. Lub means people of insight. People of insight, people of discernment. Right? People of understanding. If only you could understand this, and what will happen? La'allukum tatakun, so that you become people of taqwa and refrain from such incredible sins such as murder. Uh, second hukum. The second hukum is about wasiyah. This is one of those ayat that has been abrogated. Wasiyah means that a person writes a will and bequest, and themselves says who is going to get what share from the minister's inheritance. This is one of the early ayats that Allah Ta'ala revealed. First, Allah Ta'ala left it up to people that they should leave a wasiyah. Then He gave some guidelines to them what they should do. Later on, then Allah Ta'ala then himself then made muta'ayyan, he appointed the shares of the waratha of certain designated heirs to the estate of the deceased. So this is an early ruling, and that is, is that when death comes near to any one of you, that what, what should you do, what is made mandatory, that you should leave your property and possessions from that, which you, and you're leaving property and possessions, what should you leave? A wasiyya. The wasiyyat for his rule, al-waladain, for your parents, akrabin, for your close relatives, bil maruf, in a good, customary, known way, haqqan al-muttaqeen, and this is mandatory on the people of taqwa. All right. فَمَنْ بَدَّلُهُ بَعْدَ مَا سَمِعُهُ And that person who changes his ruling after listening to it, فَإِنَّمَا إِثْمُهُ عَلَى الَّذِينَ يُبَدِّلُونَهُ And that sin on that will be on the person who changed it. So if somebody left behind a will, and a person knows that will, but distributes their estate against that person's wishes, then the person who changed that, per- didn't falsely distributed the will, they would be the sinner. In Allah, Sameen Alim, indeed Allah Subhanahu hears everything and knows everything that you do. And that person, if you are afraid that the person who is leaving the wasiyah, Janathan, he may be partial, means partiality. What did this mean? Now Allah Ta'ala is going to erase this later by himself determining the shares. But maybe he'll say, I give everything to this son and nothing to my other son, and, or I give everything to my sons and nothing to my daughters, Right? So if you fear that this person, when death is coming near him and he sits down to write his will, he may be partial or he may commit a sin, that what you should do for Aslaha Bainum, you should try to make amends and make the peace between him and the people who he should be leaving his money for. If he makes the peace and leaves a ma'roof will, then fala ithma alayhi, then there will be no sin upon him. Indeed, Allah is all forgiving, all merciful. But later on, as you know, right, then Allah subhanahu wa took this out of the ability of a person and decreed shares of inheritance. The only thing that is left now to make wasiyah is you can leave up to one-third of your total estate and assets to a non-designated heir. So not to your daughter or son or father or mother or spouse or wife or husband, but to someone else or to some charity or to some institute. You can do that up to one-third. Up to one-third of your money you can decree. But if somebody somebody bequeaths it for an unlawful purpose, right, like I leave one-third of my money to Citibank. I don't know, think anybody would do that, right? Well, let's say somebody does that. We will not execute 
that will have no validity in Islamic law. It will be viewed as null and void. Right? No man-made law can contravene Allah-made law. So no human being can bequeath money to a cause that is haram. Nobody could do that. And it would not be executable, not be enforceable, would not carry the power of law in a court. Next ayah, okay. Ya ayyuhalladhina amanu kutiba alaykum as-siyama kama kutiba alaladhina minkum lukum la'allukum tattakun ayyamam ma'dudat. Or you who believe fasting has been made mandatory, has been made mandatory, and those who came before you, a limited number of days, and that is 29 or 30, and you will all be counting them very carefully, and you will always know this is the first fast, 10th fast, 12th fast, 13th fast, 13 and a half fast, one hour left to Maghrib, half an hour left to Maghrib, ayyamam ma'dudat. They're limited days. But what Allah Ta'ala meant here is they're limited spend them wisely. Like when you're traveling and you only have $100 with you, you spend every dollar wisely. Right? You spend it carefully. Just like that, these days of Ramadan that are coming, and inshallah next Saturday, not tomorrow, but one week from tomorrow, after Maghrib, inshallah, we're going to have a talk over here. Right? And the strong and hearty will stay with us from 2 p.m. all the way till 9 p.m. Explaining to you how to prepare, or what is Ramadan? How to live Ramadan. There won't be much time left for preparation at that point. So I'm going to give you the different talk on what is Ramadan. So limited number of days, so they're valuable. You see, whatever is limited becomes valuable. You say in Pakistan English, market me short ho gaya. Isne rate bar gaya. Right? So Ramadan ke din short hain, to unke rate bar hote Allah ta'ala kya? Only have 29, 30 days. Make them count. Make them count. That's what it means. They're counted, they're innumerable, so make them count. فَمَنْ كَانَ مِنْكُمْ مَرِيدًا أَوْ عَلَىٰ سَفْرٍ That those of you who are sick or traveling, then, okay, what you should do is you should redo them, or you should count them literally, but you should redo them in other days. Now, originally, originally there was this ruling in Qur'an al-Kareem that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said that that person, initially fasting was optional. That you could either fast or you could pay the fidya. So that's what's going to come here uh, very soon. Or in the very next ayah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to say that, yes, so, should any of you be sick on a journey, then you should fast a number of days equal to however many miss later on. And those who have the strength, alladina yutikuna, like your taqat in Urdu, those who have strength to pay fidya, what does fidya mean? Ta'amu miskin, to feed, to pay the amount of money which you could feed a poor person, equivalent to two average quality meals, right? Okay, and you'd have to do 60 of that, let's say, for a 30-day Ramadan, that is fidya, then you could do that. So this ayah seems to suggest that there was an option. And, but in that option, Allah sponsor said, فَمَنْ تَتَوَىٰ أَخَيْرًا That person who voluntarily chooses what is better, فَهُوَ خَيْرًا لَهُ will be better for him. Now, it was an ishad that is better to fast. You can think like, for example, there are many other examples you can think where Allah Ta'ala gradually revealed a hukam. Such as, prohibition of alcohol. First, Allah Ta'ala said, it's better if you don't drink it. Then Allah Ta'ala said, that don't drink it when you want to pray. And then finally, Allah Ta'ala said, don't drink it at all. So just like you have a gradual creation of a prohibition, here you have a gradual creation of an obligation. So the beginning fasting was made mandatory, but you had the option that if you don't want to fast, you can feed the poor. Later, but there Allah Spalti even said that it's better that you fast. But if you fast, it is better for you. In kuntum ta'lamun, if you are a person who really understood. The month of Ramadan is that month in which the Qur'an al was revealed as a source of guidance for humanity. This means the month that it was revealed entirely on the Lohul Mafud. And some commentators say the very first revelation that came to the Prophet Iqra Bismillah also took place in the month of Ramadan. But obviously the Qur'an took, then revelation continued not just in one month but over 22 years. It is a guidance for all of humanity. 
and it contains signs and clear manifestations of guidance and it is for kind of distinction and criteria that where you can distinguish between right and wrong, good and evil. So the whomsoever amongst you. Now this is the next ayah. And this is Allah Ta'ala's way that sometimes he, you know, this is too deep a science to explain to you in a course like this. But when ayahs were revealed across time, on what basis did Allah Ta'ala decree that where they should be placed in Qur'an? So actually, remember I told you, you have these time skips. So now time is skipping, and then now you have this ayah comes down later, but it, Allah Ta'ala tells the Prophet to put it right next to this earlier one. فَمَنْ شَهِدَ مِنْكُمْ Whomsoever from you witnesses is alive in this month of Ramadan, فَلْيُسُمُهُ That word is now the ultimate obligation of fasting. No choice of fidya anymore, that they must fast it. But still, the other thing was there that if you were sick or if you were traveling, then these are two valid excuses that you may make them up in other days. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, well, let me do that next. So, let me explain to you what does it mean to be sick. Okay. Sick doesn't mean that I find it difficult to fast. That's not, that's not what's, talking, what's being mentioned here. So, Shaykh Mulana Safaraz Sabrimullahu ta'ala. Our Dado Ustaz, your Pardado Ustaz, said that in order to be the Islamic definition of sick, there's an Islamic definition of that level of marad, that level of illness, that justifiably lets you not fast. Number one, that only a medical doctor can determine that level of sickness. It's not for you to decide, I feel sick, or I am a sick person, or I'm never able to fast. And I found people in Pakistan, really, they don't fast at all. And they claim that they're sick. Number one, a medical doctor. And, and in any court of law, right, when you want a waiver, you need an expert. You need an expert testimony, right? Expert testimony will be accepted before the court. Second, that that doctor must be Muslim. So must be an expert medical practitioner. Second, must be Muslim. Number three, must be a muttaki Muslim. Must be a doctor who themselves holds the importance of the hukam of fasting. Not a secular progressive liberal doctor who never fasts themselves. A doctor who has taqwa. A Muslim muttaki doctor. If they tell you that you are too sick, and if you think you are, you should go find a doctor like that in the next few days and get, get yourself diagnosed. Right? If they tell you that, yes, you are too sick, you shouldn't fast for whatever reason, then you're allowed not to fast in the deen of Islam. If you have hope that maybe you will regain health later, then you can wait, and when you regain your health, you can make up those. You will have to make up those fasts. And if the doctor tells you your condition is irreversible, then you will give this fidya, and you will give enough food, right? Okay. Not that you know it's difficult for me. This I've heard from so many people. Right? And yes, the and yes, you can practice in Shabbat. So if it's difficult, that's not marid, right? Medical illness. Look, you have the same thing at work, right? They're saying, you're saying, would you go to your boss and say, yeah, yeah. you know, I mean, it depends what type of place you work at, right? But if you're on sick leave, right? Sick leave is supposed to be when you're sick. If it was a tightly run company, they would say you have to bring, like we did when we were a professor, you have to bring the famous medical certificate, remember? You would get all your chachas and khalas to sign that for you, happen to be doctors and bring it to me, Right? <laughs> Medical certificate. And especially if you miss a final exam. Now think. Now think that you're USMLE. Where did you go? Right? Or SAT. What type of certificate would you need to miss that? Hmm? If you miss the final exam of your BA. 
But what the university is not going to just say, oh yeah, you, I wasn't feeling well. They'll say, you have to bring a really serious certificate from the doctor, right? Otherwise, we're not going to let you off the hook. That's for an exam. What about fasting for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? What about something that is farth? Alright? But if a person is genuinely ill, and the way that I described it, then yes, they don't have to fast. And sometimes life is about difficulty. And I'll tell you honestly, it's not difficult as you think it is. Maybe the first one or two, three days will be difficult. Inshallah, why don't you have to wakkal and pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That Allah ta'ala, I am weak, give me strength. Give me barakah. Give me himmat. You said in Quran, Ramadan is a month of taqwa, a month of mercy, a month of blessings. Manifested on me. <laughs> and give me the strength to fast this year in your name and for your sake. Alright? So we should view the ahmiyah of fasting in this month of Ramadan. Alright. Then another ayah, important ayah because it's been misunderstood. يُرِيدُ اللَّهُ بِكُمُ الْيُسْرَ وَلَا يُرِيدُ بِكُمُ الْأُسْرَ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wishes for you literally ease and Allah ta'ala does not wish difficulty for you. What does that mean? Now, in Arabic language, when we have alif lam, alif lam comes for specificity to the definite article, like the in English. Allah Ta'ala desires for you the ease, and Allah Ta'ala does not desire for you the difficulty. So the ease, when something is, in your English grammar, you say something has a definite article, it means it's already been defined. Alright? Ease as defined by Allah Ta'ala in Quran, that's what He wishes for you. Not ease that your mind comes up with that this is easy. What people do is they make a two-step equation that I think this is easy. Allah, I think anything, I think X is easy. Allah has said in Quran that He wants what's easy for me. Therefore, Allah Ta'ala wants X for me. That's not how Wahi is revealed. Wahi is revealed through books and messengers. It's not revealed through our thought process. What Allah Ta'ala wants for us is not revealed through our thought process. Allah Ta'ala is saying that I wish for you the ease that I have placed for you in Quran and Sunnah. And I don't wish for you the difficulty that I may bestow and test upon the sinners and disbelievers. That's what Allah Ta'ala is saying. Allah Ta'ala wishes for you the ease that He has placed in the Quran and the Sunnah. Not what you may come up with as easy. Understood? Very important, very important to have the correct understanding of this ayah. And you should complete the number. So Allah Ta'ala has given you this. What is the ease here? That you can make it up later. If you're sick for three days now, you may get really sick. Or you may have an anti- you may get sick enough to, to, right? It's happened. I've been sick enough to miss a fast. It's happened, right? Or you may be traveling. When you travel by yourself, you have to make it up later. You have to make it up later. So Allah Ta'ala gave you that because He wants you. That's how badly He wants you to do the full 30 days. Right? Okay. Uh, okay, before that, okay, one more line was up since So that you could ma- magnify the greatness of Allah Spanta, the Kibriyavala, this Allah Spanta saying. What should you look at when you're thinking whether you're Mariz or not? Allah the incredible greatness and majesty of Allah's sponsor should be proclaimed by us. Like we say, takbir, right? Allah in the manner that which He has guided you, tashkurun, so that you may learn to appreciate Him. Grateful, thanks, but also you may learn to appreciate Him. Next ayah. 
وَإِذَا سَأَلَكَ إِبَادِي أَنِّي فَإِنِّي كَرِيبٌ Another very important ayah of Qur'an al-Kareem, 186, one that you should remember always. Allah Ta'ala is saying to Sayyidina Rasulullah s.a.w. وَإِذَا سَأَلَكَ O my beloved Messenger وسلم, if ibadi, my servants and slaves ask you, anni, about me, I proclaim myself, فَإِنِّي كَرِيبٌ that indeed I am extremely intimately close to them. In almost every other place in Qur'an, when anybody asked upon some, سَأَلَكَ يَسْأُلُونَكَ The way Allah Ta'ala responds in Qur'an is, قُلْ Say my beloved messenger. Allah Ta'ala gave the Prophet the answer to the question. Here Allah Ta'ala answers the question himself. doesn't say, قُلْ Say Prophet Sallam, I'm Qareeb. That Allah is Qareeb. He answers himself, فَإِنِّي Qareeb. And what does that Qur mean? In what sense? You may think that, oh Allah Ta'ala is closely watching me, He is. Closely knowing me, He is. Closely waiting to punish me, punish me if I sin and repent. What is Allah Ta'ala saying? What feeling does He want you to get? What is the emotional feeling you should feel when you realize Allah Ta'ala is close to you? What I mean by that, by being kareeb to you, is ujibu da'atu da'i. I answered the du'as of the person who makes du'a to me. You see, ila da'ani. When they make du'a to me. I answered the du'a of the person making du'a when they make du'a to me. So we should become people who make du'a only and only to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. فَلْيَسْتَجِيبُ لِي وَلْيُؤْمِنُوا بِي لَأَلَّهُمْ يَرْشُدُونَ And so what should happen then when I answer, right, their du'a, they should respond to me. فَلْيَسْتَجِيبُ لِي They should answer to my Quran. They should respond to my Quran. They should respond to my command. They should fast that fast of Ramadan. وَلْيُؤْمِنُوا بِي And they should believe in me. لَأَلَّهُمْ يُرْشَدُونَ Rushd means to be rightly guided. لَأَلَّهُمْ يُرْشَدُونَ So that they may be rightly guided. Okay, now this next issue is coming, another issue of fasting, that in the early days of the fast, when Maghrib came, then you could break the fast, what is called iftar, and you could eat, and you could drink, and you could engage in relations, lawful relations if you were married. But you couldn't do that until Fajr, you could do that until you slept. So if you slept at 10 p.m., it's over. If you slept at midnight, it's over. So now, this is an example of sometimes Allah Ta'ala also in Quran made, and I gave you an example of this before, made something slightly harder and then made it easier later to give some of that the ease that He intended and revealed to this ummah. So now here Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala is changing this ruling. Now according to the books of Hadith, here, I mean Sayyidina Umar, there was a sahab, well, this is actually one of the muafikat, so let's do it. Sayyidina Umar who once, he came home at night, and uh, his wife had already gone to sleep. So what does that mean? So for men and women, once you go to sleep, now you can no longer eat and drink and engage in relations. But for whatever reason, he woke up his wife. Let's put it that way. Alright? He woke up his wife. Alright. After he woke up his wife, and then they were both awake, and then they both felt bad. Right? So now what did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala do? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed this first. This is the second of the muafiqah to Umar. Now the first one was muafiq to a desire of Sayyidina Umar. This is a muafiq to the amal of Sayyidina Umar. And what did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say? O hilla lakum laylat siyami That is permissible to you on the night of fasting. Ar-rafathu illa nisa'ikum Just, you know, having conjugal relations, put it that way. They are a garment for you. That you are a garment for them. Kuntum. 
knows that you wronged yourself. You did khiana, right? You have slipped, right? But what have you done? Fataba alaykum. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes tawbah unto you. Means Allah ta'ala relents on you. Allah ta'ala sends his tawbah unto you. Okay? And وَأَفَاءُنْكُمْ And Allah Ta'ala has forgiven you. So what happened here? This shows that Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala forgave Sayyidina Umar. So if anybody, right again, we have a particular sect which likes to bring up this ayah, and they say, look, that Sayyidina Umar broke a rule of Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala. That same Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala is saying, فَتَابَ عَلَيْكُمْ وَأَفَاءُنْكُمْ So when Allah Ta'ala forgives somebody, and this is the ruling of deen, if Allah Ta'ala forgives somebody for something, it's not our job to keep bringing it up. It's not our job to raise it again. When Allah Ta'ala forgives them, they are forgiven, that's it. We forget about it, we never think about it again. And what the ulama have also mentioned about this is actually Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala wanted a sabab. Allah Ta'ala works through, put it that way, Allah Ta'ala doesn't need a sabab, but He works through a sabab. He works through means and causes and processes. So He wanted something, He created this desire in Sayyidina Umar Himself. He created the slip so He could send His mercy down upon this ummah and change this ruling. And ever since the revealing of this ayah, then eating, drinking, and everything is permissible to do, not just until you sleep, but all the way up until Fajr. So, فَالْآنَ بَاشِرُهُ النَّاسِ So now you may uh, have relations, and you may uh, you know, enjoy that which Allah, or seek that which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has uh, written for you. Okay? All right. وَكُلُوبَ الشَّبُوهَةَ And you should keep eating and drinking. Until the white thread and the black thread are distinct. What does this mean? This doesn't mean there was one Sahaba who when this verse was revealed, he used to take out from under his pillow a white thread and a black thread and wait when there was enough sunlight for him to tell the difference between the two, he kept eating until then. So that's not what it means. It means Isha refers to when the night is black. And Fajr is the first appearance of the white thread on that black sky. The second you have the appearance of the first white thread on the black sky... That's when the time of the fasting starts, and that's when all of these things have to be um, have to be stopped. Right? Okay. And so, do not have relations with them when you are staying in the masjid for itikaf. So, when a person is in itikaf, they're not allowed to do this, right? Uh, from Maghrib to Fajr. These are the hudud set by Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. These are the limits set by Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. Yes. Falatakrabuha. Don't even go near them. Don't test the waters. That's here it's not saying don't cross them. Don't go near them. You know, like none of our young men would want to go anywhere near the border of Afghanistan. Right? You don't even want to cross it. You don't even want to go near it. Right? So the hudud of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, don't cross them. Don't even go near it. Normally we give you the example when you see a high electric, high electricity voltage wire, you don't go near it. You build a fence around it. You don't touch the fence. You don't go near something that is threatening. So these are the hudud of Allah subhanahu wa This is the feeling we should have about any ruling. Just like that, thus in such a way, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala explains His signs to humanity so that humanity may also become people of piety. Okay. Next ruling is that do not eat those things. Yeah, do not eat not those... Do not... It's eat things, but do not eat wealth and things and property and possessions bilbatim. Do not acquire things unjustly. Let's put it that way. You should not acquire things unjustly. You should not steal from one another. You should not unlawfully acquire things bainakum from one another, bilbatli, unlawfully. 
Okay, so you should not do so. Why? You should not even go to the government. You should not try to make register a file for a house that you don't have. You should not try to get the authorities to justify your false acquisition of property or wealth of other people when all the while you know what it is that you are doing. All right? When all the while you know what it is that you are doing. Then the next thing comes that they will ask you, my beloved Messer Salam, about the changing and the phases of the moon. So just tell them that the waning and waxing of the moon, right, when it goes from quarter moon to half moon to full moon to new moon, right, that these are muwaqid linnas, these are means of telling time for humanity, while hajj and they are markers of time for the months, in other words, the hajj season will also be based, so that's why the deen of Islam, we follow a lunar counter. Second, that it is not bare, it is not considered virtue, that you enter homes from their rears. Now what happened was that these idol worshippers, they used to feel that it was part of the, uh, let's say, respect that they would give to the Kaaba, that they would enter into the Kaaba through the back door. They would enter into the Kaaba backwards, right? So, and all, sorry, and when they, they would, when they were doing Hajj, when they returned home, they felt that they should enter their home backwards because they've returned from Hajj and this is now something that's not good that they're doing that they've returned home. So here Allah subhanahu is saying is you shouldn't enter homes from the back doors and this is, there's nothing virtuous about this practice. Meaning there were some sahaba who were formerly mushrikeen who were continuing this practice after they made Umrah and Hajj and Allah subhanahu is revealing to them that there is no need for do this, to do this anymore. This is a baseless custom. You can view it like that. All right. Just like that, that, that's done. You should fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so that you may become people of success. This is another hukam. Alright, now these are the ahkam of jihad. But specifically this is, was first revealed in a particular incident when Sayyidina Rasulullah went for Umrah with the Sahaba Ikram and the unbelievers, the kuffar, mushrikin of Makkah, stopped the Prophet from going for Umrah by force and by violence and by military engagement. In other words, they engaged in a battle. They waged war on the Prophet and the Sahaba. Alright. So, now Allah subhanahu wa then revealed this verse that what you should do is that you, when you're going in the, and one way of going in the path of Allah subhanahu wa includes going for Hajj and Umrah. Right? So you should fight those people who are fighting you. Baqatilu, those people, Alladina Yukatilunakam, those people who are fighting you, engaging in war, you should fight them back. It's not their right to stop you from going for Umrah. So if they're going to fight you, you should fight them back to get your rightful mm, place to get uh, mm, your rightful place to go for Umrah. Alright? Okay. But you should not exceed the bounds of that fighting. What does that mean? It means if they stop fighting, then you stop also. Because you were fighting them because they were stopping you. If you fight back, then they back off and let you go for Umrah. Then don't chase after them and finish the fight. You're only fighting them for the purpose to get them to stop fighting you. That's what it means. Alright? Inna Allah la yuhibbul mu'tadeen. Allah subhanahu does not love those who are excessive and take great leeway in the commands that He's given them. Okay, then Allah subhanahu says here that you should fight them. Okay, now what we're going to say is actually this word, qatl as opposed to qital. Qatl means to kill as opposed to fight. So you should kill them in which places, right? Now this is one of the ayahs that is quoted 
right, by a lot of these people who suggest that Islam is all about killing and all about terrorism. You should kill them wherever you find them. وَأَخْرَجُوهُمْ And you should expel them مِنْ حَيْثُ أَخْرَجُوكُمْ From where they expelled you from. Alright. What does this mean? It's very simple. It's a very simple thing to understand. What was Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saying? Now watch. Those of you who can see me, look at me. There was a group of Prophet and Sahaba who were going for Umrah. There was a group of unbelievers who came and waged war, military battle, fought them with weapons to stop them going. Allah sponsor said, okay, you should fight back. One option was to find go home, right? I said, no, you should fight back. It's your lawful right to go for Umrah. When you fight back, in that act of fighting back those who first fought you, when you find them, kill them. Don't take prisoners in this type of battle. It's still maybe too intense for some of you. Don't take prisoners in this battle. Those who are fighting you first, and you are fighting them back for a lawful right, fight them to the death. That's what Allah is saying. Why? Allah is explaining it. Allah is going to explain it right now. Why? وَالْفِتْنَةُ أَشَدُّ مِنَ الْقَتْلِ That it's not ideal that you kill them. Right? We would love to just fight them and take them prisoners and let them go again later. But these are people of fitna. And they're causing fitna for you. So what's fitna? They continuously disturb and plot and oppress you. They send their armies against you at Badr. They send their armies against you at Uhud. Even when things get better, you have a treaty. They violate the Sulu of Hudaybiyah. You're going for Umrah as was agreed upon. Again they come and fight you. And they're fighting you with an intent to kill you. When somebody draws a sword against you, it is not fencing Olympics. They're trying to kill you. So they're... Fitna, you have to now, since they've proven time and again, and when an enemy force has come against you first with military power and their aim and intent is to kill you, fight them back and kill them to end this fitna. That's what's being said. What they do is they just pluck this and say, look, the Quran says that you should kill them, kill, <laughs> kill non-Muslims wherever you find them. It's not saying that. Read the ayah before it also. Read the second one in connection with the first one. Now you understand? Now you understand why you need Ta'alim al-Kitab because even the translation, you wouldn't have been able to figure that out. Right? And there's nothing wrong with that. Every country in the world has an army. Every army will fight in self-defense. Anybody who attacks them, what do you think? They're going to use an air gun? They're going to use a paint gun on you? If you go attack the Canadian army, are they going to say, well, they're human beings, so naming human rights will shoot back with paint guns? No. I said, they're coming to fight us, we will fight back and we will fight to the death. That's it, that's all it was. If only those kuffar, mushrikeen and Makkah had let the Prophet of and Sahaba gone for Umrah, right? And you all know, and I know, whether non-Muslims know it or not, that the Prophet of and Sahaba would have gone for Umrah and they wouldn't have bothered a soul. <laughs> they would have gone for Umrah and gone back to Medina Manara in absolutely the most peaceful of ways and they're going for Umrah in Ihram, was absolutely non-threatening. Right? But this type of kuffar, they, 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 that meant nothing to them. It meant nothing to them how much that he was a prophet of peace, they still tried to kill. So at that point, I said, fine, this is a fitna. They're a fitna. Well, fitna to ashaddu min al-qatl. The fitna that they represent is even more worse than the fact that we'll have to murder them because they're fighting us. Now you got it? Alright. وَلَا تُقَاتِلُوهُمْ in the Masjid al-Haram But when you reach Masjid al-Haram, because that's the sacred area, and these are certain rules, that killing does not take place in this sacred area. حَتَّى يُقَاتِلُوكُمْ But if they fight you even there, 
Again, what does it mean? If they come to fight you, to kill you, even in front of Kaaba, then the rule will be broken in self-defense. Normally you're not supposed to engage in any fighting in front of the Kaaba. Right? But if somebody's coming to kill you and they're physically attacking you to do so, then you must kill them. Fight back even to the point of killing them. Fihi. Okay? You got to fihi. They fight you in the sacred precincts of the Haram. فَإِن قَاتُلُوكُمْ فَاقْتُلُوهُمْ Alright, if they try to slaughter you, then you should kill them. That's simple. So you can think like the punishment for murder was murder, right? The punishment for somebody in Islam, the punishment for an enemy army that tries to, that attacks and fights and tries to kill Muslims is that they will be fought back. They will be fought back. I think that's a very reasonable thing. I think that's very reasonable. I don't find that to be extreme in any way. What is extreme is non-believers attacking Saba who want to go for Umrah. Right? Okay. This is the proper recompense for those unbelievers of this kind. If they stop fighting you, if they stop fighting you, they're fighting, they stop fighting. It didn't say if they stop fighting and they become mu'min and they make maghfir to Allah. No. If they stop fighting, what is Allah Taala saying in Quran Karim? If they stop fighting, then indeed Allah Taala is all forgiving, all merciful. Allahu Akbar. Ajib. <laughs> what more could you want? <laughs> what more could you want? Okay. But again, right? Wakatiluhum hatta la takuna fitnatun. So now we had this word again, right? Fitna. So now Allah SWT is saying that and only fight them back to the death to the extent that they're longer a fitna. Don't engage in genocide. You don't have to wipe out the mushrikeen of Makkah. Don't do that. And all of you know in Fatih Makkah did the Apostle do that? No way. He didn't touch any one of them. At that point, why didn't he touch any one of them? Because they were no longer fitna. They realized. They were maghloob. So don't touch any one of them. Only fight and kill to the extent that they're longer fitna. Maybe they surrender. Maybe their massive forces get dwindled enough, then stop them. When you know them, they can no longer have the strength to stop you from going umrah. Right? That's enough. Look at the clear limits, tight control Allah is putting on this. Right? And once the deen is for Allah subhanahu wa so when you've eliminated their idolatry, that is ghalib. You see in Makkah Mukarama, they've got their idols there. Once you go and you establish deen there, this enough, then it's fine. It's enough. Alright. فَنِنْتَهَوْ And if they stop, فَلَا udwana, And you shouldn't bear any enmity towards them. So the guy who raised his sword and was about to kill you, the enemy commander says, retreat, he lowers his sword, send him off with a smile. Don't be upset with him that he raised the sword against you. Allahu Akbar. Can you imagine? Don't be upset with him. Right? I don't know what your translation, what is your translation saying? Right? Where are we? What does it say for you? Those of you who have this English. He said aggression, right? You can say aggression, but it's enmity. Right? Enmity and aggression if you want. Illa al-zalameen. Only on the wrongdoers. So it's why is it? It's not because they're unbelievers. It's because they're zalimi. We don't need, we're not interested in physically attacking people because they're not Muslim. That's not the problem. The problem is what was fitna and zulm. Fitna and zulm. Fitna and zulm and their aggression and their kitab. 
So their fitna, their kital, and their zom is the reasons Allah Ta'ala is giving in the Quran why we engage in jihad. Not because they're unbelievers. Important? You see all these three words here? Alright. So we have to stop here because we run out of time. Once again, but I did have to, once this topic was such an important topic and such a source of great misunderstanding amongst our called universe, and this is what you should think. What's the matter with me? I don't even know even basic one, two Jews of Quran that CNN and Fox News and Daily Times and Friday Times can convince me that Islam is terrorism. Haven't I read just this one page, one page I did here. And for some of you, it's even depending on your font, it's less than a page. Learn Quran, know Quran, you will understand who is Ar-Rahman. Right? I have a small announcement for you that I'm going to make. And this is, uh, I'm not consulting you, I'm simply telling you. <laughs> because I have no other choice. What we're going to do is, uh, tomorrow, we have the regular times, which is 2 o'clock, right? On Sunday, on Sunday, the day after tomorrow. I wasn't sure whether to tell you this or not, but I feel I should tell you, since I know it's only fear, and I don't want to be one of those who conceal what they know. Right? On Sunday, I will actually not be here. And that is because I was supposed to go to Karachi last weekend for a particular purpose. And due to the violence there and all these things, and even my own mother called me up on the phone and was telling me not to go, so I didn't go. <laughs> Although then things became fine the next day, like, they, like Karachi is, you can go the next day because everything takes care of itself in a day. Right? So I have to go to Karachi for one day. So I'm actually going to be in Karachi on Sunday. But it doesn't mean you won't have the dirt. Just like there are people sitting in Karachi right now, there's a house in defense and people are sitting listening to this online. We are going to broadcast it online to you over here. So those of you who have been coming regularly, I would encourage you not to leave out what I call the tasalsal, right? Don't leave out the continuity and come here and everything will be here other than my face. For the women, it will be no difference. For the women, there's absolutely no difference. There's no excuse for any woman not to come on Sunday. And if all of you are here, obviously, for Qur'an and not for my faith, then all of you should be here on Sunday as well. And that's the only one day I won't be physically present with you. But the voice, everything, screen, all of it will be there, inshallah. Alright? Then, on Monday, when I will be back, starting Monday, just for next week, before Ramadan, let's say, for the rest of July, rather. Monday is July 25th, Sunday is July 31st. Right? I actually want to, I'm going to, do this from 2 to 5.30. I need that extra half hour now to sort of catch up. All right? Starting Ramadan, which is August 1st. August 1st is most likely for Pakistan the first Taraweeh, but still we'd have to leave at 5 because we need to do some preparation. So to keep it simple, easy to remember, starting Monday, so I've given you tomorrow's standard, Sunday standard, but broadcast online. Starting Monday and for the rest of July, which is Monday, July 25th to Sunday, July 31st, we will meet from 2 to 5.30. Fridays will be 3 to 5.30, right, as was today. Starting August 1st, Monday, August 1st, for the rest of August and the rest of Ramadan, it will be 2 to 5 only. And Fridays will also end at 5, not 5.30. All right? I'll get somebody to type this out and we'll try to give it out to you, a small leaflets tomorrow, inshallah, so you have the schedule in front of you. Subhana Rabbi Lana wa Habalaam wa Sunday Allah Sayyidina Muhammad wa Allah Ali Sayyidina Muhammad wa Barak wa Sunday Rabbana Zanamna Anfusana wa Illam Takfilana wa Tahamna Danakunana Manam Khasirin Ya Allah Ya Rabbi Kareem we want to become people of their 
Ya Allah, through only and only your mercy, your karam, your generosity, your might and your majesty, Ya Allah, you let us today collectively read together Ayatul Bir, the ayah in Quran which you talked about Bir, about virtue, about taqwa, about piety. Ya Rabbi Kareem, when we look into our hearts, when we look into our homes, when we look into our lives, we find ourselves dangerously empty of Bir. Ya Allah, we want to put virtue back inside of us, put piety back inside of us, put goodness back inside of us. Ya Rabbi Kareem, put the khair back into our deen, put the khair back into our qalb, Put the khair back into our life. Make us a source of khair for our family. Make us a source of khair for our friends. Make us a source of khair for this society. Make us a source of khair for the ummah. Make us a source of khair for humanity. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem. Ya Allah, we ask that you send your special salawat and rahmah upon us. Send your special blessings and mercy on us. Make us strong in this month of Shaban. Help us to prepare for the month of Ramadan. Give us tawfiq to fast each and every day for you, Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, in this upcoming month of Ramadan. Ya Rabbi Kareem, let us find only and only that ease, that is the ease that you have put for us in Quran and Sunnah, and let us stay away from the false deceptions of our nafs and shaitan, and all the false ideologies and fitnas in this world. Ya Rabbi Kareem, you said in Quran that fitna was ashad, that fitna was even more devastating than qatl. Ya Allah, we are living in an age of fitna, in an age of sedition, in an age of discord, in an age of atheism, in an age of falsehood Ya Rabbi Kareem let us grasp firmly to this deen let us live a tayyib life let us live a pure and virtuous life Rabbana taqabbal minna innaka antas samiyul alim wa tubu alayna innaka antat tawabur rahim wa sallallahu ta'ala ala habibihi sayyidina muhammad wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in bi rahmatika ya arhamar rahimin amin